I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We have a very special guest today. Tom, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes, absolutely. Uh, this is Doug Haycheck. And Doug, please tell me if I mispronounced your name. Is it Haycheck or Highcheck? Highcheck. Highcheck. Okay. And Doug is the creator of a show that I don't think there's anybody in the audience that hasn't heard of it. It's Monster Quest, one of my all time favorites. And um, Doug, welcome to the show. Welcome to Creek Double. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. And Will, I haven't, I've never talked to you, which is kind of surprising. <laughs> well, I kind of fall between the cracks sometimes, so. <laughs> no, I think I'm the one that fell through the cracks because, you know, I just joined Facebook. I had, people had no way to get a hold of me. Um, and um, so I joined and I'm just shocked at all the, just amazing people I've met in the last well since November. Yeah, there's a lot of people up there. I I'm kind of on and off, and um, I don't get a I don't get a chance to chat with. I have a lot of friends on there, so I'm trying to I should try better at making the rounds. And but um, yeah, it's a it's a busy place. Yeah, it's um it actually just um totally shocked me because. You know, I figured, well, there'd probably be a little activity on Facebook, but Lord knows how many um, groups, Facebook groups, there are that deal with cryptozoology and Bigfoot. I mean, it's kind of endless. And you get added to groups without knowing about it. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, and the, the cool part is, I mean, I love talking about the topic, but Sometimes it's so much, um, I get overwhelmed with so many messages that I can't get back to people as quick as I'd like to. Um, but um, generally, it's it's kind of 24-7 now. I found myself still on the phone with people and messenger calls, five in the morning, four in the morning, three, you know, you just go, wow. go, go. Yeah, so, I, I get my share. I don't, I don't know about three in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, they wouldn't get me. I'm pretty much comatose at 3 a.m. Well, I'm kind of one of those night owls, and I, you know, I, I get up early every day, but man, I stay up late. I just, I seem to get by with, you know, three, four hours of sleep, sometimes only two every night, and wow. get up. Time, maybe 10 o'clock, it rolls around. I am fully awake again and just kind of rare and go. What, what do you have? Uh... What kind of a diet do you have? I need to uh, mimic that. Oh, it's pretty much seafood. You know, I just see it and I eat it. Yeah, oh. there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I eat pretty much anything. But um, 
I've just always kind of been that way. Just somebody who didn't need a ton of sleep. You know, no matter where I was, what group I was with my whole life, I'm always the last guy to go to bed. You know, I'm always the last guy to poop out. And it's kind of, uh, it's a problem, but you get a lot of work done if you use your time, you know, um, productively. You know, if you're just sitting up playing video games, well, that's no good. But I tend to work, you know, uh, 20 hours a day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's uh, that's how you got. Tell us a little bit about the uh, about Monster Quest and the creation of Monster Quest and kind of your involvement and, and all that. Ooh, um, well, Monster. Well, first I did Legend Meet Science, um, and I got involved in the Bigfoot topic from going from just doing wildlife shows. Um, so I was pretty heavily involved in broadcasts, but I was doing, like I was working for Animal Planet, doing uh, nature documentaries. And one day I was up in the Arctic. Um, I think I told you the story, Tom, up at Selwyn Lake. And we were up there trying to get footage of a, of a giant lake trout that we knew existed. Stopped to take a break on shore. And just with my luck, here are footprints, huge footprints, coming out of the shallow water from an island up on this sandy beach, which was slightly damp, you know, to get those really crisp footprints, up into the pea gravel and then into the lichen, you know, on the tundra. And then there was a small stand of stunted spruce trees. And the footprints went in a straight line right to these stunted trees. And right in front of the trunk was a footprint. I mean, you know, inches away. And right behind it was another one, three and a half, four feet away. And we're all like, uh, this thing stepped over the tree. And it was like a seven-foot tall tree. Oh, my goodness. And, okay, that's incredible. Yeah, and then everybody in the party, and there were three of us. Um, maybe, there, yeah, there could have been four, actually. Um, and everybody's like, uh, we need to go back. Because <laughs> it really hit everybody. We were dealing with something big and it may be close by and i said hey let's keep going past the little stand of trees and they're very stunted up there um because of the cold you know in the short growing season and we were literally right on the tree line so behind the stand of trees was tundra miles you know forever tundra which had no trees and you could see those footprints going off into the horizon in this perfectly straight line and it was life-changing at that point i was just obsessed like what made those footprints we went back we we took a hurried ride um uh, by boat to the floatplane pilot where he had his tent asked him me and rick went in there and we go hey you know we found these footprints and they look fresh and if we can get the floatplane up we could probably follow them because there's no tree cover how often does that ever happen, guys? I mean, where there's no tree cover, where anything can hide. Oh, yeah. And, the, and, and so it was, it was, and plus, I've got broadcast quality cameras. I've got long lenses. Um, and he thought we were trying to play a typical kind of uh, outpost hoax, which I admit I've done a lot of them on people, but never about Bigfoot. You know, I'm the guy that would you know, short cast, uh, short tie people's rods and reels and, you know, just simple little jokes. It's kind of a thing at, at camp. Usually everybody gets the new guy, but I think <laughs> he thought we were trying to 
hoax him. And he got angry, threw the clipboard against the wall and of the tent, and he turned red. I've never seen a man ever actually ever turn that red. And we backed up out of that tent because it literally looked like he was going to punch us. Um, and I regret every day of the rest of my life that moment that I didn't somehow, you know, go back with my tail between my legs and try to get him to believe me. But then I, I came back was then now I'm only thinking about Bigfoot. Um, something made those tracks and I had met Matt Moneymaker, first person I'd met that had any knowledge about, you know, Bigfoots. And he's like, oh yeah, these things are all over, all over, you know, North America, anywhere there's, you know, woods, water and hills, you know, there's sighting reports. And and then we <clears throat> ended up um, pitching Legend Meet Science, got that on the air in Discovery. Then I did Mysterious Encounters series, which I believe was the first TV series ever on just Bigfoot. And um, that only lasted 13 weeks uh, because the network decided to go to a different direction. But it was the most popular show on their network. And then from there, I did a, I started pitching a show uh, just a documentary on Giganto. Didn't go anywhere. Nobody wanted it. And then I had this crazy, brilliant idea to go, hey, I'm going to call it The Real King Kong. <laughs> and I called my agent up, and <clears throat> he sold it like that week, you know, with that new title. And um, then that show was uh, did really well in the ratings, set, a, set a, rate, a record. And literally, they called me up the next day and said, hey, can you do more of these? And that's how Monster Quest was born so very wow. very organically yes yeah exactly that's that's a good way to put it organic growth on it yep um i saw the interview years ago where you talked about the the uh, trackway going up into that into those stunted trees yeah and the pilot i'm just like you know i wanted to strangle that guy i'm you know figuratively speaking of course yep <laughs> it's like this was a golden opportunity just think about the the footage that would have produced. Yep. No, it, it, it didn't look. It would have been the perfect storm. There was no way that if that thing was real, could have hidden. And those tracks were so deep and so clear on the tundra. Um, you know, fellas, that, he he may have had an experience he didn't talk about. The reaction or, was kind of yeah, odd. That's, that's possible because he was a pilot and he flew a lot up there. And it's possible maybe he thought his whole career would be ruined. Um, I mean, who knows what he was thinking? Or he just thought we were playing a joke. You know, and we're all just, you know, trying to make fun of him. Or maybe he had been made fun of in the past. Oh, that's a, you know, we talked about that a little bit earlier today. Um, some people have a real visceral, angry reaction yeah. to Bigfoot. And, they, and I think a lot of it has to do with the... Uh, the treatment of the topic being very tabloid, very silly, very foolish, and nobody wants to be aligned with that. And you know, this the, you know the subject of ridicule. So I, I kind of get that. Um, real quick before we move on too far, uh, you talked about the trout that were in that lake, and they're enormous. I had never, you know, to me a a huge trout is, you know, 20 inches, you know, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, but the ones you're talking about, 
tell us about how big those things were. Yeah, well, um, so I would take numerous trips every year, and I would go to the Arctic, mainly to film and for pleasure, <laughs> because I could catch, you know, 30-pound lake trout. <laughs> And on a regular basis, like, you know, each day I would get one, two trophies. And so, <clears throat> but one day we were up at the Windy River and we were, we were casting um, upstream and we were, you know, and I'd hooked a, probably a 20, 25 pound lake trout and I was reeling it in and they put up quite a fight, um, fishing that big. And I remember my guide was standing, balancing on the bow of the boat <laughs> on this 14-foot boat, and he's standing there in the bow watching me reel this fish in. But here comes this, which looked, at first I thought it was a man swimming in the water trying to get to my trout that was flashing in the, I mean, the water's gin clear. And so here comes this slow, like, you know, going side to side, this giant fish. And it followed it damn near up to my boat. And I could see this thing was at least six feet long. You know, maybe it was five, but I mean, no less than five foot. And uh, <clears throat> I think it was an easy six, could have even been bigger than six. And I, I'm just like shocked. I get my my 25 pound trout in. And I said to, said to Ron, I go, oh, did you see that? And he just seemed all, he's like, oh yeah. <laughs> He goes, we see those all the time. He said, but they're too big to catch. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And so I came back and I had a theory on how they got that big in this gin clear ice cold water because I had read a lot of Al Linder's books when I was a kid on, on these giant northern pike. And he had stated that some fish just get out of their niche. They just bypass, you know, they'll... They'll live in deep cold water versus warm water. Maybe they won't breed. The females won't breed, and they'll just grow to enormous sizes. Because really, it's breeding that kills a lot of uh, fish and invertebrates. And so, if they don't breed, and the water isn't, it doesn't have bacteria in it, like up there. It's so gin clear and cold. Um, they, they can just. What's going to kill them? So they just keep growing. And I met. Um, I talked to Gary Girk up there. And I asked, I interviewed him, and I said, how old are these trout that we're catching? He goes, uh, probably about 100 years old. And those are for the 30-pound fish. Oh, that's incredible. So, uh, uh, you know, and see, a 30-pound fish is about 42 inches long by about 20 inches in girth for a trout. So that's a pretty good size. That's a huge fish, yeah. Yeah, it's a massive fun fish to catch. And we always fish barbless. Because we have so much respect for these, you know, old fish. Oh yeah, fish barbless. Um, we put we have cradles. We actually guide them into a cradle, like an ambulance cradle. We lift them up. We put them on the uh, gun rails of the boat. You know, we'll photograph them, measure them, and then carefully release them. But one day I had a trout that was probably over thirty pounds, and we reeled up. This fish, I swear to God, was looking around the boat. I've never seen such wisdom in an animal ever in my life. And the guy goes, well, that's because it's probably 140 years old. Wow. Ooh, yeah, I, I got it. I mean, that fish even st- stared me down. 
And it probably has, you know, maybe people have thrown guts over the side. I don't know. Maybe it, or just it checking like it out. It was its first experience up on land. And it was just taking it all in and it was scared. But it was just the way it was intensely looking up and down. And, you know, their eyes can, you know, move in uh, 180 degrees. And, man, it was taking full advantage of that vision. And um, so it was, but it was those experiences that, Got me to think, well, maybe giant squid, you know, the Krakens, are the same situation. They stay down deep, you know, in the oceans where the water's cold. cold of course, cold, deep salt water isn't going to have a lot of bacteria to, you know, to, to kill animals. And then if they just become cannibals like that trout was, and they just eat their own kind that are migrating up and down you know, the water column, which has got to be hard on an animal to go up and down a thousand feet every day to feed, where the big ones just stay down, they don't breed, and they just become cannibals. Then it was that theory that I, it was just a theory that I finally got a team together, got the money from History Channel, and we went down and on day two, we nailed it. We got the first footage of a, of a true Architeuthis that was, you know, living in the wild. Wow. You know, that's interesting that you bring up the Kraken because that also was considered just a silly myth and a legend from oh, those sure. you know, sailors. Come on now, you know. And now we know they exist, and they're—it's uh, kind of bad news if they grab you because they're taking you down a couple thousand feet and gulp your yeah. dinner. I think the legends come from when they're dying, or if they ever did come up, they're never going to get back down because their blood is full of ammonia. And it's just going to boil. I mean, they're never going back down. And they're going to flail. And they're going to die a very painful death. Um, so that may be where the legends come from. But um, but it's just, you know, but I, my main point is by thinking out of the box, you know, and, and trying to think about what, you know, what causes something to do something far beyond just the obvious to really try to maybe reverse engineer it. And that was, you know, also me going, hey, let's do a multi-step process to try to get footage of an Architeuthis. Because just putting a ROV down there, which everybody had been doing for 50 years, you know, they've been putting very uh, high-tech equipment down. And we just put a camera on a squid. So we got, a, you know, a squid that was five feet long, put a camera on it. And so we had this multi-step process, and it was the squid that got us the footage. Was yeah. that the uh, film that was filmed in, in Baja? Yes. Yep. Oh, I had no idea you, you were the guy. I watched yeah. that with yep. absolute fascination. Yeah, I was, the, I was the mastermind, but we had a lot of skilled people. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Team, yes. So I take – the only credit I take is for the idea, you know. Um, and picking the right people actually pulled it off. Um, but it has been tried now three or four times. Again, same method, nothing. No one's really? got anything. So, and that, that was confirmed as the first Architeuthis ducks or giant squid ever filmed in its natural habitat. Yeah, I remember that was a very interesting show. And, you know, there's, I, I thought that there were some parallels kind of between that whole process and discovering that and discovering our other topic. Yes. Bigfoot. There is. Yep. 
all we have to do is capture a Bigfoot, put a camera on it, and let it go, right? No, I'm thinking coyotes. Coyotes. <laughs> I'm thinking a white-tailed deer with a collar and a camera. Um, if you guys really want to get your, your mind blown, go to, um, I think it's called a wolf. A camera, camera's put on a wolf or something to that extent. You can find it on YouTube. For the first time, I took a, a wild wolf, tranquilized it, put a camera system on it. And everything they learned from that system was unknown. Everything. That is interesting. Guess, and guess that what? kind of makes sense. I mean, where would the wolf go? What would it do? Well, yeah, but... The, you the get to wolf, see all that stuff. The wolf didn't even eat what they thought it was eating or hunted what it, they thought it would hunt. It was going fishing every day. Oh, really? And fishing and eating fish every day. They never saw it ever attacking any other animal. It was just fit. It was just fishing and eating fish. If you can imagine a wolf doing that, it just goes against everything we thought we knew. Yeah, I never in a million years would have guessed fish. No, um, I, I, me either. And I've studied wolves for you know thirty years, and I would have never guessed it. And so, if we could get a, you know, a paper collar, a cardboard collared camera, on a on a coyote in a pack in an area where we know there's Bigfoot activity. Um, and if even the native stories talk about um, the coyote working, you know, alongside other animals, maybe that would be the, the Trojan way that we could get, you know, the footage that we all crave and we all want just through a Trojan, Trojan coyote, put a, yeah. Yeah, take a well, call. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you and I talked today, and you've had a lot of encounters with, you know, you've heard the vocalizations. You've just, you know, you just had a lot of, uh, and, and really what it boils down to is th the creatures are out there far more than I think people give them credit for. And I think if you know what you're doing, they're easier to find than, than people may guess um but some of the encounters that i had you know the one i was talking about like even last summer uh they were doing these sounds that sounded vaguely like coyotes uh but the the team that i was with were you know we're all in 100 percent agreement it's not a coyote unless the coyote's got lungs the size of a diesel locomotive exactly <clears throat> yeah plus there's certain vowels that you'll hear when it's not a coyote or a wolf, and it's like, uh, wolves can't make that vowel. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Well, tell us um, about some of the encounters that you've run into. I know you had some situations in, gosh, even, uh, well, I shouldn't say even, but up in Minnesota, because that's very rugged country, especially up north. But um, pick a couple of really good stories sure. encounters well my <clears throat> my first experience which i did attribute it to bigfoot i'm you know i'm just telling you that but it was long before it actually had any visual like seeing the footprints i was up deer hunting with my um all my cousins my uncle and my best friend and my uncle knew this area really well and he put us all on a deer stand which were you know quarter mile mile apart and we got out there early, you know, before long before the sun came up, 
And right when the sun just, where you could barely see your hand in front of your face, I smell this horrible smell. And it was so bad I had to cover my face. And then I heard chest beating. And I'm not talking about a grouse because, you know, I, I know what grouse sound like. This was very thundering, loud, hollow chest beats. And then <clears throat> the chest beating quit. The smell went away instantly. So then I, I go back to camp uh, at noon. Didn't see any deer all day. Go back to camp. Every single person, every one of them, except my uncle, my cousins, and my best friend, all had the exact same experience. And um, they smelled the smell and then heard what sounded like chest beating. Then the chest beating quit and the smell went away. And I attributed that, you know, because I remember it was brought up too. And geez, was that a Bigfoot, you know, or some kind of gorilla? Um, but the smell was horrible. So that was, you know, my, my first, what you call gray basket experience. Um, God, there's just been so many through the years. Um, I've only seen them twice. I have never seen the face, which to me is the kind of the, I guess the, 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 the more important thing to me would see the face. So I don't even consider my sightings good sightings, but like me and Yvette were driving, um, on 169 in Minnesota, right by the Mille Lacs Lake. Now, which is our second biggest lake in Minnesota. I believe it's uh, Lake Superior, then Malax, and then I think it's uh, uh, Lake of the Woods. But this is a huge lake. You cannot see across it. Right along shore, we're driving on the, on the narrow road, and I do have some cars behind me, and we're coming up, and we look and see what we think is a, a moose. From the back, we we think it's you know waving its antlers. As we got closer, I'm thinking, God, that's w- bigger than a moose from the back. Then I'm seeing that the antlers are really arms. You can see the broad shoulders, and it was waving its arms as if it was drawing in a repetitive motion. Um, you could see its fingers open were even open on both hands. And even Yvette could see the fingers, um, and you could see the long hair hanging off the arms. And it was just, we were just shocked because we're just, our brains going, you know, what are we looking at here? In my car, I don't think it was four feet from it, drove right on by it. Wow. Wow. Just what like you have loved without a camera. Yeah, a dash cam. I do now, by the way. Um, that was one of the last draws without not having a dash cam. Um and then, uh, you know, me and her had another sighting, once again, a road sighting, in an area where there's been a lot of reports, walking along the ditch right about dusk, so we could still still plenty of light out, and we got a great look at it. And it was walking in a swampy and thick alders, but it was clearly visible. You could see the entire upper torso of it, and you could see um, the gray, it was a very gray color. And and it's just kind of a mission statement. It just was plowing through those alders. And we just looked at each other again. It's like, did lightning just strike again? And we saw this thing. And once again, I'll bet you 10, 15 cars saw it walking along the, the road. Because we looked at 
Google map and right where we saw it, it had to go there to get back to this big wilderness area. It was a pinch point. And it had to take that little peninsula of land between these two lakes to get back into the uh, protected, you know, the state forest. So made sense. Wouldn't you have loved to talk to the people, the other cars? And- you know, one of the things I, I really do wonder about, and I think back and I go, why didn't I stop? We were just, you know, so overtaken with the whole experience. And you've got cars behind you. You know, one of the first things you do is look in the rearview mirror. And you've got cars behind you and you're traveling at 45, 50 miles an hour. And you're like, uh, and there really wasn't any place to pull over there. But still, why didn't we turn around? It's almost like you, your brain just goes dead. You know, like you can't think. You're overwhelmed. And then that, that moment's gone and, and you're forever regretful. So. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And, um, Will, you and I have talked about that where you and your friend uh, Jack had an experience where you you were basically uh, coaching each other, for lack of a better word. Okay, this is what we're going to do if we see some wildlife, if we see a bear. You, get, you had the camcorder, um, and you saw the bear, and what did you do? Well, and, and we discussed that all day. We, I mean, we were in the field, and, and that's what we were doing. We were up in, a, in one of the research areas, and, uh, and I told him, I said, look, how many times have we heard somebody say they saw something, even if they had a camera and didn't get a picture? I said, we have to be prepared, and we have to be mentally prepared. So we each had a camp corner in our hands and we were heading back to our camp around, it was around one in the morning and in the, and there was a road that come in to the left adjacent to us and it it merged onto the road we were on. And, uh, I saw us movement in, in the peripheral light, his headlights, something running. And in, in just a moment, this little year old bear came zipping out right in front of his Yukon and we're, we're cruising, trying to keep up with little buggers, running straight down the road. Run maybe 100, 150 feet, something like that, and then zipped off in the timber. And we stopped and looked at each other and said, now, we just discussed this all day long and didn't get a damn picture. All we had to do was lift the camera up and hit and press record. Yup. And once again, we had we both had cell phones. We probably maybe had time to get them out and start filming. But you're just... You're in shock when, you know, when that bear ran out, you didn't expect the bear to run out no, in front of your, your no. But had it been one of these creatures, you know, then it really would have been, um, you know, something we'd have kicked ourselves for. But I can tell you from standing in front of one of these things, uh, pulling that phone out, well, back in those days when we didn't have cell phones, but, you know, a camera or something is the last thing I was thinking about. Yeah, I, I really do think that um, cameras are, and I I totally relate to it because, you know, I'm a filmmaker. Um, I'm very slow to react, which I should be just right on top of it. But, dang, you're just so like, what in the world am I looking at first? You're trying to figure it out. You're occupied there. Right. And then when it dawns on you, it cannot be anything else. It's almost too late. It's that proverbial underwear changing moment, and, and your mind is just right in the moment. Well, think about this, Will. 
Um, we, we all have these cell phones, right? But really, time yourself and all it takes to power it on. Go to the app, hit the app, right. then the app opens up, then you got a picture, then you got all these things at the bottom, photo, you know, mm-hmm. uh, panoramic, video, and you hit that, and then you've got to look at this big thing, and if it's sunny out, you you know, you're not even going to see your screen, um, which makes it even harder to choose, and then you've got a 3.6 millimeter lens, which is great for close-up work, you know, when someone's six feet away, but 20, 30 yards, no, they're just tiny. And so Patterson and Gimlin and, you know, footage like that, they had a spring wind, instant on, no, fo- you know, set on inf- infinity, no focusing, no messing around, just boop, bam, they're filming. So in a lot of ways, they had better technology now, oh, back yeah. then, yeah. than we do now. Yeah. You know, talking about uh, Bob Gimlin real quick. I saw an interview with you, and maybe you could kind of uh, tell us that story again. You were actually interviewing Bob, yep. and at one point you stopped and said, hang on, and you are prepared to give him a million bucks. Yeah, I, uh, I, I stopped. Well, I got pretty much done with this interview, and Bob had never done one. That was his first one. I was with him at Willow Creek for like three days. And we'd even gone to the Bluff Creek um, uh, film site, and it was his first time back there. And, you know, he'd done all these things, and finally he agreed to do it right when the sun was setting. So I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so I've got tor- terrible light, and literally every second counted, I grabbed my camera, didn't even white balance it, just because I'm thinking, it's content, baby. You know, it's just going to be what he says, and I'm going to film him, and did that. Got done. I called my um, my executive producer of Mysterious Encounters, and I said, hey, I got an idea. I said, why don't we offer Bob a huge sum of money, and then he'll, you know, he'll, you know, under the conditions, if he wants to confess the hoax, and then go through and give us an exclusive, we'll do a whole show on it, and, you know, and, and the, he knew it was like the the Zabruder film or some of these other rare films. He knew it would go big, and so I and I so we discussed quick. I said, "Can I offer a million bucks?" He goes, "Sure, go ahead." <laughs> I said, "I don't think he'll take it, but whatever." So I I turned around and I said, "Bob, I just got off the phone. I've got authorization to offer you a million dollars if you'll tell us how you hoaxed the Patterson Gimlin footage." And you're willing to do the TV show. You know, we'll do an hour TV special. And he goes, Doug, I'd love to take your money, but let me just tell you again what happened. And he just went right into the story. He didn't even he didn't even think about it. You know, that's so cool. He didn't even blink. The man no, strikes me as a think about a, it. Yeah, a gentleman of, of just absolute integrity. I think and, so. And I you know, and I I didn't want to offer him that to prove he was hoaxing. I'd offered him that because I knew damn well that would be his reaction. Yes. Yeah. I just thought, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm standing in front of him. I've got the money behind me. Let's just do it and see what he says because um, I wouldn't have expected anything different than what happened. Well, you know, that was a good point that you made that, you know, this film, and I heard somewhere that the second most viewed film in the world was the Patterson-Gimlin film, second yep. only to the Zabruder film. Yep. And, you know, the people that call 
that film a hoax to me is is very similar to the people that call the moon landing a hoax yeah it's it's really much you know along the same lines yeah generally it's yeah it's based out of a lack of information yes yeah that's exactly right um yeah so i was i was very impressed with that and that should put it to rest well, it certainly, you know, it certainly brings one red flag down. Um, now I'm hearing, you know, I, I, I'm always hearing rumors about, you know, the film is a hoax and <clears throat> you get new researchers that will contact me or or, or kind of want to get into a debate on online about it. And I'll usually say, hey, let's get Bill Mons on the phone and let's go through every one of your your whole list of objections as to why it's fake. Yeah, we did a two-part yeah. two-part show with Bill, and, and Bill really did a great job. Yeah, and Bill knows his stuff. He does. You know, um, you could just take one thing, Will and Tom, like like the the distance from the joints doesn't match human. I mean, it would if you we were willing to let us break your forearm and install a joint there or, or maybe put you in a stretcher and stretch your upper torso, you know, another uh, 20 inches. But, um, I mean, you just couldn't put a guy in a suit. I mean, that's kind of the end of it right there. Let's put it this way here. Let me just throw, if Bob was to come forward and say it was a hoax, <laughs> just so he could raise money for his wife or something before he died, I wouldn't believe him. Yeah, the evidence is, you know, and there was a real interesting piece of data that you found in the film. I think it was you that discovered it, which was a herniated yeah. on the femur. Yeah. The Can you tell us about corpse. that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, for literally months, I had the a good copy. John Green had loaned me his best copy. <clears throat> I brought it down to a place called Crash and Sue. Put it up on the, you know, on the film transfer machine on the 60 millimeter three. We did a three light transfer. Cost me about 10 grand. And it was projected live up on the, uh, up on the monitor on this big high def. Back in those days, high def monitor was like something most people hadn't even seen. And remember all the chuckles. Uh, there was quite a, it's a big control room. There were probably 20 people in this control room and they were all chuckling. And then when the film started playing, and then when we captured it, and I had them rewind, you know, once it was transferred to video, and everybody could see it in high def, and they could see the muscles. And I was pointing out, you know, the muscles. And I, of course, knew about the hernia at that point. Um, pointed this stuff out. You could pin. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. I just found out it was re really interesting. One of the people that was in that control room that day to this day is a major researcher. He just got a hold of me. He goes, remember that day? <laughs> and he's telling me the story. And I'm like, you were there? And he's like, yep, and I'm still researching Bigfoot. Totally, totally 100% convinced me. You know, when you could see on this big, it was probably a six-foot high-def monitor up in the air. And he could see the muscles. And he was like, dang, no, that's that's definitely real. Yeah, I've I've heard. Uh, so, well, actually, Will, you've talked about the the super high quality of the original film. Well, I, I was just thinking about that. You know, when I was up, you know, Renee Hinn and I were, were friends, and I was up at his house one year, and 
we were talking about it. And he said, well, I, I've, I've got all the stills on slide. And I said, well, drag him on. I want to see him. So he put up the projector and the screen and, and we looked at him and the same thing. You, you got to see all those great detail that you don't get to yeah. see anywhere else. Yeah, if he had a slide projector, I bet you that was pretty impressive. It was. Um, but you had asked about the um, the hernia. So there's a little more to the story on that hernia. So I'm seeing this thing. I'm doing what I'm calling in the early days. I know I was the first person to ever do it, and that's uh, frelling. I call it frelling, forward, reversed, enhanced loops. So I've got this digital, high-tech, you know, editing system and I can create all these small backwards and forward loops by cutting cutting up the, the digital information. And I could just sit there and stare at it. I could make a six-hour loop and just sit there and watch the muscles. And I did that for every muscle group. And one day I'm sitting there and I'm going, what the hell is that? And I see during this one leg bend, this perfectly round knot bump come up and down. You know, with the leg bending a certain way, and it did remind me of me seeing a, excuse me, a hernia once. I immediately called the surgeon I knew, had him look at it, and literally here was here was the response. He goes, "I fix those every day in women. That's <clears throat> yeah, every single day." And the fact he said women, and Patty's supposedly a female, I just about fell off my chair. He said. So women get <clears throat> pregnant and they get these tears and that tear starts in their groin and then it works down to their femoris muscle and works its way down, you know, after they lose their weight and, you know, everything changes. And then I have to repair that hernia, but usually it ends up right in the exact spot that's shown in that film. And um, so that's kind of the rest of the story on it. But... Here's the other weird part. So I'm not still not sure it's a hernia because if you try to walk in that compliant gate, you know, where you don't lock your knees, just try it. Try it for a good 10 minutes. Guess where you're going to hurt really bad. And it's going to hurt like a, like a, you know, like no tomorrow, right in that exact spot. So it could be a highly developed femoris muscle from the compliant gate from having to walk like that because I find it odd that it hurts in that same spot. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> I wished it wouldn't have hurt there because then we'd know it was a hernia and not a highly developed, you know, femoris muscle. And so i still don't know. Controversy goes on. Yeah. But you know, again, it's either way, it really supports, you know, how did a couple of cowboys know this stuff? I mean, you know, and how did they, why would they create a female Bigfoot and how would they know that it had brass? I mean, the whole thing was, you know. Yeah, I mean, you can see the, um, the, the pores on the nipple if you do your enhancements right. There's those little raised bumps right around the, around the nipple. You can even see those. There's just no way that they would have gone to that. That amount of attention thinking, oh, 50 years from now, people are going to be enhancing this. You know what I mean? They wouldn't, they wouldn't yeah, even right. have heard to them. Um, that film has gone through more forensic stuff. And when you when you really get into it forensically, the red flags disappear. 
they don't they don't present themselves as more red flags. They 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 go by the wayside. That never happens. It's very rare. I just I just debunked a very famous footage piece of footage that nobody knows about yet. Um, I was saving it um, for a show that I'm still wondering. Um, obviously, I can't feature it in a show as a centerpiece because I got the data ahead of time, and it's clearly a guy, you know, wearing a baseball cap with sunglasses and holding the phone. <laughs> but everybody thinks it's a Bigfoot, and it's actually quite famous. I wow. just announced it here first. But um, I'm going to post something on it soon. Um, but it was also on shot on film, you know, very, very high-quality film. But because of the exposure, you know, things can, you know, we have to just get to the truth is what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, just because it's so supposed to be a Bigfoot doesn't mean I'm going to be, you know, it's Bigfoot. When I go out, I try to debunk it. And I did my damnedest for, oh, God, 10 years on the Patterson footage. And every time I do, they say, oh, I got an idea what I can do. No, it just strengthens it. It doesn't debunk it. You know, talking about uh, the hoaxes, uh, you and I talked earlier today about, and I guess we'll talk about this, people, if, if somebody does have a monkey suit or something like that, there's a certain dye in yeah. the can you talk about that for a little sure, bit and sure. how you exploit that to determine if it's a hoax or not? Yeah, all fake fur, all black, I should qualify, all black fake fur has indigo dye in it. It's actually quite fluorescent. In sunlight, it glow it, it, it gives off a blue aura when you film it. And if you ever see any footage of a white Bigfoot with IR lighting. And there are several of them out there, guys. If you take fake fur, once again, everybody, don't believe me. Go do it yourself. Go to Walmart on Halloween. Buy yourself a fake gorilla costume or Bigfoot or whatever. Take an IR camera. Shine IR lights and film it. It's going to be pure white. And so when you see these IR films of, you know, so-and-so white Bigfoot, don't buy it because it's fake fur. You know, there's one that comes to mind. Yeah. We're not going to mention it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. And you can, once again, try it yourself. I learned this um, accidentally in trying to do recreations for Mysterious Encounters. I wasn't trying to hoax, you know, footage, but I was trying to just do a reenactment. And I couldn't. And I actually (laughs) found that um, even certain clothing, you know, with... um, uh, laundry detergent and certain laundry detergents will cause it to glow but um but fake fur glows like it just turns pure white yep black fur including brown fur fake if it's fake it will it will be completely white yep oh that's interesting so so one of the tricks i've seen on um on youtube and i've seen people claiming it's thermal footage and of course it's white right it's actually IR footage. So it's infrared footage, not which thermal is IR, but that's a whole different thing. It's that's measuring heat. But sometimes it you know, on a black and white thermal camera it'll look white. No, I'm talking about with a film camera, you know, one of these like old Sony night shots. Um, it'll be white. And I've seen some IR footage people are passing off as thermal. 
So it's just something to be aware of. Oh, no, that's that's really interesting. And as soon as you said, I, I didn't know, um, but as soon as you said that, and I bet a lot of people in our audience are doing the same thing. They're going, oh, yeah, I've seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, the other thing, too, is um, like, I, like I've, I've done the Freeman footage. You have no idea how much hard, how hard I worked. Once again, just endless amounts of hours interrogating Paul night after night after night after night after night. Year after year, I inter- interrogated Paul Freeman. Um, did everything I could to trip him up. Did everything I could to, to get to the truth. There is no indigo. There's no blue. I've compared um, uh, frequent light frequencies on the on the footage. I worked with a light frequency scientist. He said, I mean, even his conclusion was, no, it's real fur or real hair, I should say. Um, it's just there's certain frequencies, and this guy happened to be one of the top frequency, light frequency scientists in the world. And even he's like, nope, that's real. So if it's if it's fake, it's made from real animal hides. So the only way you could fake the Freeman footage is if you – you know, actually killed yeah, suitable animals and sewed a suit with the hide. But one of the things of the Freeman footage <clears throat> that I, I haven't really told anybody, but there's one little part of it where that creature reaches behind itself and grabs a branch that has um, been pushed back and spring-loaded by its body, and it reaches blindly behind it grabs the branch to stop it. And to me, that's when I got my chill moment. You go and tr- you try to do that. And it did it so lightning quick. <laughs> you know, not looking at it. It's like it'd been doing that constantly its entire life. Um, yeah. So you know, I, mean, you I t- could talk about the Freeman footage forever. And yeah, I know, Paul, it's even possible he faked something, you know, like um people may do when they get to have a real experience get some real footage attention wanes maybe there was something he did that was you know i'm not i don't care about that i only cared about that footage um because uh, you know you hear all the rumors and they could all be rumors but um i mean i could talk about the, that darren freeman footage forever too just like the patterson footage there's things in it that are weird um, there were things in it that Paul didn't even know. Um, Paul had never tried to enhance it. Um, I had the original um, eight millimeter tape, so I didn't have a copy of a copy. I had the original. Um, he trusted me with it. Paul was so enthusiastic to have me tear into that thing. <clears throat> if he had hoaxed it, I don't think he would have been that enthusiastic. You know, he never, never charged me to air it. Um, um, he basically made me the guardian of the footage after, after, you know, I had put so much work into it. Um, and it's just sad, you know, of course he passed on and, and, um, we don't really know, you know, what's, what's happened to the, to the family. I don't know anyhow at this point I've lost contact with him. You know, you, there was another film that you and I talked about today that I'd forgotten about. I saw it and it, it was just, it struck me as interesting. And that's the one, I think you called it the Independence Day film. It's it's, no, uh, it's it looked, the Memorial Day. Civil Memorial Day. Okay. Memorial. Can you comment? Tell us a little bit about that one. Sure. Um, 
I first met the um, Pates because they wanted me to analyze it. They didn't want they didn't want to air it on TV. They didn't want anything. They just want just like you sent me some photos today, Tom. You just want to get to the truth, right? Right, right. Whatever that may be, you want to know what's what's on the film. And so they filmed this. But that creature had come around earlier that day, um, was hiding behind several trees, and it was spying on their kids, which freaked them out. Um, and there were several people that saw that creature during the day. Um, and so they were prepared. You know, they had even seen it on the hillside, but they were prepared they, um, to see it again. So they had their cameras at the ready. And finally, when it ran across the hillside, um, you know, they filmed it. Um, at the end of that footage, it's intriguing. There's, there's a number of things that are intriguing. One, during one of the jumps, it appears there, of course, people will say, well, it's a backpack. It appears, once again, to reach quickly behind itself and pull up something that's on its back. And then it's later confirmed when it gets to the forest edge, this independent thing, when this its arms are hanging by its side, and this independent part of it just pops up, which would be an infant. Um, it literally just boop, pops up on its own. And of course, the skeptics go, well, that's a hat. That's its mask. It's pulling. Well, if it's pulling its mask up, well, how come its hands are hanging down by the side? And this thing pops up at least 14 to 18 inches, you know, up above its head. Um and so you you go, I went out there, you know, I surveyed the whole mountain, literally with LIDAR radar, a lot of high-tech stuff. Um, you know, obviously got to hang out with our lions, who was one of the witnesses. I uh, got to meet Lori and Owen, Owen Pate, hang out with them for a week. <clears throat> and, you know, it's kind of like after you've been with somebody that long, they wouldn't take any money, you know, to air it. And I wanted to do this on TV, and they were willing. Whatever it was, if I debunked it, they were fine with it. Whatever, because they didn't know what it was. Was it a guy in a suit that they filmed? They didn't know. And so I hired an Olympic athlete, um, I think Derek Pryor, to do the run. And I was hoping that Derek would get beat by the time, you know, by the creature. But Derek did beat the creature. But then Brady's like, well, then you debunked it. No, I didn't debunk it. I was just looking for something abnormal, you know, in the footage, which would have been high speed. But doesn't it doesn't surprise me that Derek beat it because it didn't look like it was running at full speed. It was just running to take cover into the forest, and it looked like it was carrying something. Um, but, boy, that, that hillside was treacherous, man. Derek um, slipped a number of times on that hill. I just, I couldn't picture a guy in a suit running on that dangerous hill. It was just, you know, rock strewn, uh, it was slippery, it was steep. And you really can't appreciate how steep it was to get up to the top of that mountain. And then you look down and you see the little, you know, the little tiny tents below that. And you go, ooh, yeah. This is, uh, if you fell, you would tumble all the way to the bottom. Well, yeah, it's a real good point. I hadn't thought of that. I didn't know that that was uh, – so this is a very treacherous area. Yeah, very, very treacherous. Yeah, you okay, would Okay, and you hired this this this. you said he's an Olympic runner? Or? Yep, Olympic athlete to run it. Okay. And he did beat the creature, but not that, not by much. But it well, 
Yeah, and and the other thing is, is he's talented to you know he's probably got running shoes on and you know all that sort of thing so yeah he um i, I can't remember none that's funny because i can't remember whether he had cleats i think he did um but he ran that and he slipped a number of times and almost got hurt um now picture having a suit on <laughs> yeah you, right you're not gonna be able to see anything um it's not happening no, I, I I put my, you know, if I was a betting person, because of the amount of time, I would um, say it's, you know, it's the real enchilada. Um, I can't say that about a ton of pieces of footage. Um, but there there are other ones that really, I haven't studied, studied yet, but I think eh, this one, you know, might be real. So I don't think they're they're all that rare. The one in Russia... There's one where it um, kind of leaps across an open area and then does up. It's got yeah. its arms wide open and it leaps and you can see this huge wingspan. And the only way that could be real or fake is if it's CG. It's the only way I detect yeah, I saw no that CG. One. There's no CG in it. Well, and there's, there's, yeah, there's the the two boys in yes, Russia. Yes, that's the correct, yes. Correct. <laughs> They got the mayor of the town, uh, and he's a great guy. <clears throat> Seems like a real nice person, but looks like he could be a definite candidate for uh, a Neanderthal. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird, um, it's a weird piece of footage, and uh, yeah. I would love to get a hold of the original tape on that. Just love to. Your son, one of the interesting, and I don't know if it made it in the film or not, but this is when you guys were at that remote cabin you have to fly into yes and there was like a kind of a post-production interview with your son and you know i i really zeroed in on his his demeanor his tone of voice the facial expressions everything just you know just screamed this guy is he's authentic he's genuine he's truthful um and tell us a little bit about that what happened there well, actually, it was funny you mentioned that because he actually went into physical shock from fear up on that trip um, during the middle of the night when it threw a, what we think is a piece of cordwood. But it threw it with such force at the, at the cabin and, and hit on our wall. So it was really loud. And of course, there's tin siding or galvanized siding on the building. And it just was like, uh, boom, you know, and it just echoed and. And he was wide awake when that hit, and he was cowering because he was worried about, um, you know, big rocks coming in through the window. And I had built up a, a barrier of uh, people's uh, duffel bags to protect him. Um, and at one point, I found him under the bed. It was literally just like we're talking hundreds of spiders under there, <laughs> spider webs. That's how scared he was, hiding shivering turning he was white um and um he really thought we were going to get killed that night he absolutely was had convinced himself we were we were going to die and die in a horrible way um and so when he did that the land interview yeah you're you're picking up on you know his eyes getting big you know um he's recreating that moment yeah, yeah well it changed his life he's still doing research you know he still is uh, an avid researcher um, I think that that whole trip changed his entire life. Um, 
I saw just huge changes in me. And to this day, we work together. And, you know, we have that camaraderie. Um, we have that great, um, you know, this father-son kind of, uh, uh, that one thing in common that bonds us, which has been great through the years. And he's brilliant. He's a brilliant kid. And, and uh, um, he's now not a kid anymore, I guess, 30, 30 years old. And um, No, he's a kid. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it's. But he's still doing research, and he's doing – some of his research is kind of dangerous in my mind. Some yeah, his, we talked about some of that. Um, so just real quick to kind of recap that post-production interview. He was – well, he was outside, you know, relieving himself, and a, I believe what happened was this massive rock just went flying right by his head and hit, hit the side yeah. of the building. Yeah, it hit. It literally. I was standing near there, and me and Kurt Nelson, the uh, geneticist, were not far from him because we were all talking, and we were all scared, believe it or not. Um, and that rock came like a bullet and missed his head by just inches, and just you know, it was just one of those uh, bullet throws. If it would have hit him, it probably would have killed him, and that. Of course, got the geneticist very angry, um, and that kind of started the whole, you know, the whole thing going on that night. Um, and once again, the cabin got attacked that night too. And all we had was a butter knife in the door, just to, so we could hear noise if something turned the doorknob, which oh, I yeah. think they can do. Um, and I, I know I've listened to Will through the years, and I know Will, you, you know, they're probably not all warm and fuzzy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is true. Yep, and I've heard you talk about it. In fact, um, I've uh, been on the edge of my seat sometimes when you're talking about, you know, the the, dan- the danger factor. Because no doubt there is. You know, there's got to be danger in doing research and solo camping and, you know, those kinds of things. I think these things are highly capable of tearing you and just tearing you in two. Well, and there is... Uh... Yeah, there's kind of a correlation. We talked about that. We won't get too much into it, but there's a correlation between um, not just missing people, but people that have vanished in these areas, you know, where the creatures are. Um, One of the areas that I was actually the area that I sent you the pictures of, Mm -hmm. um, that just down the road, and I, I. I think I mentioned that little town with the bulletin board just plastered with missing livestock, animals, and some people. Yeah. Okay. So just right across the street from there, there's a guy that, um, you know, he sells huckleberries and he sells mushrooms and he sells, you know, all sorts of wildland stuff that he picks out in the woods and he just sells on the side of the road and kind of like a little booth. So right after we had that um, kind of weird encounter by that natural spring. Driving back, I I, uh, I said, oh, dude, I said to my friend, hey, man, I want to get some, this guy sells fresh huckleberries. I love those. They're great on pancakes, man. It's the, it's the only way to go. So I said, man, I'm going to go in there and get some of those. So I pulled in, and he said, no, it's out of season. I'm, I'm sold out. So I got chatting a little bit, and I said, well, there's an area about 30 miles from here where – I used to pick huckleberries, and I said, but I'm never going back. And he goes, oh, Bigfoot, huh? <laughs> I never hinted, didn't say a thing. 
And I was like, well, okay, interesting. He said, yeah. He said, I ran into him two times. He said, once about five years ago, right up there where I pick him. And then he said, last month, I was up there with my dog. And there's two of them up there. And they started throwing these rocks about the size of an, an oversized softball. And they're just really flinging them at me. Um, so we left. And, Will, you remember I, I mentioned that to you. And you said, well, when you're throwing those big ones like that, they're, they're out to get you. Yeah, that's yeah. not a good not a good situation. The little stuff is not a big deal. When they're throwing the big ones, yeah, you want to get out of there. Yeah, and I've had both, <clears throat> experienced both little tiny ones that are just lobbed. You can tell they're being thrown underhand, and then you get the bullets. And um, the, there's the small, sharp bullets, and then there's the big softball ones. And, man, if you hit with one of those, you know, you're a goner. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Their, their accuracy is it's kind of uncanny. Um, I had a big one thrown at me that hit a tree right above my head in the Skookum Meadows. And um, we were out with no flashlights. And um, one of the guys we were with, uh, Mario Benassi, who used to work for Marty Stouffer, he got angry. <laughs> he just, some people just get angry. They're just like, I'm going to go get my revenge. And he tore after this thing. <laughs> and he's chasing it through the dark, no flashlight. I mean, you can hear the brush crashing. You can hear both of whatever the, you know, the creature was and Mario. You can hear them both crashing through the forest. And he was gone for like a half an hour. And I'm like, ah, dude, he finally comes back. I'm like, what the heck were you thinking? He's like, I just, I don't know. He said, I just got really mad, you know, because I could have killed us. And I'm like, oh God, you talk about guts. <laughs> yeah, that and that's a lot of logic there. It could have killed us, so I'm gonna run into yeah. its backyard with no flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> Who's gonna win that's that one? That's a true story. And um I get new respect for people like that, and I also kind of lose respect as I'm like, dude, you know, you could have been just killed. Will, have you ever heard anything like that before where maybe a bunch of boys go charging after this? <laughs> that would have been us. <laughs> well, you know, that was John's, John's younger brother, Jeff. He he was, uh, we were out, you know, when we first started doing this stuff, and he, he threw a rock out into the brush, and, and he leaned over and he told his brother, he says, do you, or I think John said, did you, did you do that? And he says, yeah, do you think the guys would get mad? And he says, yeah, you better be quiet. Well, a few moments later, a pretty large branch come flying back from the direction of where he threw the rock. So we got the bright idea. It wasn't too happy, or we weren't happy. We went charging up the hill. Ten of us did. And uh, when we looked back at the camp, there was two fires going, and we see these two silhouettes of these creatures rummaging through our stuff. So we decided to do reverse and charge back down the hill. And of course, they were smarter than us, and... Um, you know, left the camp before we got back there. But I, I don't know what made us think we were going to go charging off into the woods after him. Same thing, no flashlights, no brains. Yeah, and what happened? Yeah, they went to the camp. <laughs> they drew us out, and they went in and got oh, our goodies. Well, my my son, when I was just mentioning the danger, he picks spots 
where people have gone missing. That's his only, that's his criteria. Because he's curious whether, you know, there's Bigfoot activity. Be careful with that. In those specific areas. And that's the only place he goes. And every time they have Bigfoot activity, and it's kind of, it's like, damn, I don't know. That's the smartest idea ever. Yeah, if they typically won't take people, but if they've gotten to that point, um, I would stay out of that spot. Yeah, and you just you don't know what you know what made them do that. We have no idea. You know, was it their uh, scented soap they used? Was it because they were hungry or because they were angry and just needed someone to wallop? Um, <laughs> you know, it was the scented soap. I'm sure. You don't know. The last place he went um, was a lake called Whiskey Jack Lake in the Boundary Waters Canoe area. Two people have gone missing there. The last guy, they only, all they found was his wallet. Never found the guy. Never found his body. And, of course, they set their camp right where the guy went missing. And it's just him and his girlfriend. They put, um, <clears throat> you know, the recorder, the audio recorder out the tent 20 feet. They run cable inside. They have a splitter. And they're listening to these things throwing uh, softball-sized rocks right near the tent. And they're rolling up to the tent all night long. And of course, at that point, you're going to have to stay till dawn. You're not leaving. <clears throat> that trip gave him and his girlfriend uh, PTSD. He literally said to me the other night, I'm thinking on quitting research because I just still have nightmares about that night. Well, um, that saying, poke the bear. Yeah. Be careful. So who knows? <clears throat> we don't know, you know, we don't know for sure they're they're messing with people, but kind of makes sense, you know. It just uh, seems to fit the bill because I do know they have a short fuse. That I do know. I've experienced that, and boy, that and when I say short, it's quick and it's short. Yeah, very much so. It's like uh, calm and quiet one moment. You startle them or scare them or, you know, um, it went into, these things went into a rage. And they're vindictive. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of. Um, well, uh, and the other thing is, is we may do something that we don't realize. You know, it seems very benign to us. Um, it, it's, it's, it's nothing, but to them, it could be a real slight. And that just, you know ticks them off it sends them over the edge and so i wonder sometimes if when these people are out um you know and they just suddenly vanish did they do something to send this thing into a rage you know we, we don't know yeah it's just uh, very interesting I lost you guys for one second um oh it's funny i just got i just got a text literally <laughs> from somebody they're not they're apparently um they're asking me whether i actually had offered bob money because there's other people online discussing it right now and apparently there's a little controversy going on with bob again with the, the pg film again oh no wait wait you're you're trying to say that within the bigfoot community there's some controversy yeah just a little bit oh no say it ain't so <laughs> They want to keep dredging this stuff up, and it's just nonsense. Yeah, I know. It's um, born out of, um, once again, not not ever taking the time to actually study the film first and really study it. You know, invest a little money, you know, get yourself an edit system. And I think a lot of these people are just 
you know, they're scoffers and debunkers. So you can give them all the information in the world, but they're entrenched. They're dogmatic. They're not going to budge because that's kind of where they get their their juice from. It's it's a way of getting attention. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, Doug, what I was saying, just when you... Uh, when it kind of went off the air for you for a second, I'm just saying that, you know, these creatures, um, things that we are seeing very benign to us can be a real slight to them and they'll react to it. And so I've often wondered when people suddenly vanish, did they inadvertently do something that would have seemed normal to them, but set one of these creatures over the edge? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it could be. It just could be something that um, we don't understand. Maybe they had rocks thrown at their tent. Maybe they walked out of the tent. Maybe they threw a rock and hit one. Maybe they uh, fired a gun because we don't know if these, you know, in in that case, uh, the Boundary Waters case I was telling you about, you don't know what went down. Um, But it's just, you know, and then no doubt Bigfoots are individuals. They're not all going to be the same. You know, there may be be some that are serial killers. They just enjoy killing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think the same holds true for, not the serial killer part, but just wildlife in general. You know, if you get into uh, deer and elk and that sort of thing, they're, you know, you have different personalities. So, well, Doug, we are at the edge of our our time, but I got to ask you, we got to have you back on again, and sooner yeah. the better. Yeah, Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's do it again. I'd love to talk to you about um, those uh, handprints that you sent me photos of. I've got a picture <clears throat> you can, I'd like you to have a look at, too. It's it's just a photograph that was sent to me. Uh, it's a broad daylight picture. It's actually pretty good quality, I think. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to look at anything. Um if you get it to me, I will immediately, just out of usually my curiosity, even if I'm busy, I just dive into it. And I'll send it to you. Start then. doing what I can do in hands. Yeah. Yep. Send it, please. Well, and it's from yeah. your neck of the woods, too. I mean, kind Michigan. of. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the picture, it was sent to me. Um, I don't have a backstory on it. I don't know how the picture was taken. Uh, it was a family friend who it was given to and she sent it to me. She said the people who took it won't talk about what won't talk about it at all. Uh, they refuse to deal with it. They even refuse to acknowledge what's in the picture. So interesting. It, it's interesting. I find that with legitimate pictures, that's usually, uh, the case with the witness. They, they want nothing to do with it. very interesting there are um no doubt some good pieces and you know still photographs um out there that you know no one's really seen um my kind of take on still photos even if they're really good and really clear Mm -hmm. not going to have a ton of scientific value exactly but they have but they have value to the researcher they're interesting sure they are interesting and if we could get some sequential stills right that clear close up that would raise the bar i'm still you know i'm the work i do and the things i'm planning on doing in the future aren't going to prove anything but they're going to raise the bar a tiny bit 
And uh, that's all we can ever really hope for. It's just little inch by inch. You know, Incremental, keep, absolutely. Keep, keep it moving forward, guys. Well, listen, fellas, we're just about out of time. Doug, it's been a real pleasure, and absolutely we're going to have you back. Yeah, that sounds good. Just let me know, and I'm all over it. All right, everyone. Well, listen, stay tuned for the next segment. We'll be right back. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Tom, I guess we, uh, we'll just kind of wing it today since, uh, we got some questions, some discussion. So, uh, what's going on? All right. So we have, uh, great questions coming in from our viewers and we want to thank you for that. Um, okay. So, um, John wants to know, we've talked about the color, the hair color of the creatures as, you know, red is predominant because, you know, then when they get older, some of them are gray and then some are, you know, the younger ones. And these are just generalizations. The younger ones are going to be black. <clears throat> Excuse me. But are there any other um, either colors or color combinations that we've heard of? You know, I've actually talked to people several times that have mentioned um, multiple colors. Now, I don't know. I, I'm sure it's not like a calico cat where it's all over the creature's body, but um, it could be like people, you know, let's say, you know, men who have, have has ch- chest hair um, get older and and that may turn gray, you know, along with the hair in their head, let's say, as opposed to, you know, arm hair and things like that. Um, I, I'm sure it's that's kind of what people who have seen this are getting around to. Well, that brings up another kind of a side question. What about hair loss? Have we heard of any of the creatures where they maybe have, have it, <clears throat> has anybody seen a bald or a balding one, you know, like a elderly person? Well, that's a good question. Actually, what I was told through my sources, um, the type four creature has hair loss on the top of its head. The other variations don't. Uh, they seem to be pretty uniform, but uh, that particular one does have that feature. Well, and you and I have talked about the Type 4. It's, it's very different. Uh, no pun intended, but it's a different critter. It is, yeah. And, um, yeah, so yeah, I guess that could, that could stand to reason. that. Uh, and it's not every single creature. It's, you know, it's uh, like in the human population, I suppose, where you get various individuals that uh, exhibit that or in various stages. Yeah, exactly. Okay, um, we got another question here, and this one is from Janelle. Janelle wants to know, have we ever heard of any Bigfoot researchers using knockout drugs? You know, Grover Krantz had the idea of using a tranquilizer gun, and there's a huge, huge problem with tranquilizers, and that's you have to know the body weight in order to have the correct dosage. And since nobody knows that, um, it's basically speculation or guesswork. Um, it, it's it's just not an effective means. 
Yeah, it sounds, I mean, it sounds logical, but then you get into the nitty gritty details. And there's another um, issue that I, I wonder if it might be an issue. You know, people have shot these things with, you know, re- reportedly with 3030s and 30 out sixes with little effect <clears throat> other than the thing screams. <clears throat> if you try it with a, uh, a dart gun, it may just bounce off. And then it may be annoyed at you. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I got a pretty good look at the two that I ran into uh, when I was a teenager, and the hair was really thick. Um, you know, from, from that observation, I would say I wouldn't try it because most likely the, the needle probably wouldn't penetrate that much hair. And if there's things stuck in the hair, you know, there again, it's kind of like um, an added protection for them. Yeah, exactly. And then, let's say, let's be hypothetical. Let's say you did get it to stick, and you got a dosage. Even if you do have a, the estimated proper dosage, you know, you look at the lions and all the other animals that uh, you know biologists use to trank them. Well, they don't go down right away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It could be lunch in the meantime, and then a snap, yeah. then a snooze, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it just may come up to you and say, you know, I didn't like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he says, hey, you don't, you don't need to give me the shot for me to take a nap. I'm going to eat you, and then don't worry, it'll come naturally. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay. Um, Okay, we got somebody here. I don't have their name, but do we have how do you, how do we estimate the populations? Well, let's let's be hypothetical. We'll say state of Washington because there's a lot of them up there. Um, what would you would you venture a guess as to or, or even a rough guess how many are what's their population up there? I have no idea. Uh, I suppose you could take reports, count the numbers of reports, and make some kind of a calculation based on that. But it's not very, I don't think it's very accurate because you have a lot more people that see these things than ever talk about it. So, you know, your numbers are going to be way off. And I, I just don't think there's any accurate way to do that. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Uh, the DNR up there and uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife, they have software, they've got algorithms for calculating, you know, like, you know, all the other, you know, bears, mountain lions, deer, that sort of thing, their populations. Mm-hmm. But there's a margin of error in there. And and that's on a creature that you know a lot about. You have decades and decades of solid information. Sure, lifespan number of offspring typically breeding patterns things like that with these creatures you don't have any of that information yeah it's very fragmented at best um good question but we just don't know yeah no we don't know and that's i guess this is more of a statement this is kind of a personal statement and that is uh, we no longer ask now neither one of us you for a very long time do they exist? That's no longer a question. The question now is, well, what exactly are there? Well, and yeah, I mean, I and, and that's something we don't really know either. <laughs> right. 
well, there's a lot of unknowns and people do a lot of postulating, you know, which it can be fun sometimes, but uh, when it comes right down to the nitty gritty, you know, you have to just admit you don't know. Yeah. Um, okay. Diet. What do we know about the diet of the creatures? And if you know the diet, can you kind of use that to predict where you might find these things? Not really, because they're um, they're an omnivore. Um, lean they lean heavy on predation. In other words, they're going to go out and catch their food. However, you know they'll scavenge, uh, they'll eat vegetation, they eat garbage. Um, we don't know what proportion comes from coming around human habitations and eating, you know, pet food, livestock food, you know, the pets or the livestock. Um, I don't think there's any accurate way of modeling that currently. No, um, but it, be, it does bring up an interesting point, and that is I wonder how close they do get to, I wouldn't say civilization, but to rural civilization, because uh, we do hear about them stealing pets, livestock, uh, food from semi-rural uh, locations. Well, the area I grew up in was rural, um, you know, mostly farms. So, you know, they were coming into that area. Uh, seems to be routinely, uh, through, once a year they'd come through there. And, um, you know, there was lots to eat around there. So, and not just the animals. I mean, you know, we had fruit trees and I'm sure other people had fruit trees in the area. So, you know, easy pickings. Yeah, and that's actually a real good point because it seems like there's an awful lot of uh, reports, not only of uh, the creatures liking apples, you know, when people gift them, which we don't really recommend, but <clears throat> when they do come on, we hear a lot of reports, even up there in Northern California where, and also up in Washington State, where they seem to be, you get a lot more reports of these things around apple orchards. You know, where I grew up, we had, um, our, our home was a part of a homestead. And uh, so the house was built in 1900. And the family planted apple trees. So we had three of them in the yard. One out actually by the barn, um, not too far from where I had that encounter. And those were all, those were all big apple trees. I mean, the, the trunks were you know, between one and two feet thick on those trees. So, and they were massive producers. So, um, it could be they were coming in the area for the apples. And let's see, your sighting was September, October? It was around October. Let's see, we okay, had... Okay, yeah, so there's tons of apples on the trees. And well, actually... And we actually had, there were three different kinds. Um, one of the trees produced early in the season... Uh, another one kind of midway, you know, late late summer, early fall. And the other one had uh, a winter variety. Oh, okay. So they didn't ripen until, you know, later in the fall. Well, we have an apple tree in our backyard. And, <clears throat> you know, you get a lot of windfall. So, you know, we're very busy cleaning that up. Oh, yeah. But... <laughs> You know, by, by late fall, winter time, you just kind of don't really care anymore. I'll deal with it, you know, when the weather gets nice. Especially when it starts raining. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But what happens is the, the windfall ferments. 
and then you get every, you know, you get possums, you get um, nutria, raccoons, and they actually, <clears throat> they'll go out there at nighttime, we can hear them through the bedroom window, getting into fights. So they're getting this fermented apple juice, getting drunk, getting into fights. <laughs> I'm just Got some I'm raccoon, saying, raccoon you know, DUIs yeah. going on there. <laughs> well, and I just wonder if these things were, you know, maybe they had a hankering for the more fermented uh, variety. Or, you know, you get, like you said, you, the raccoons are there. What if they're there eating the raccoons? Yeah, absolutely. And then they get some nice little dessert treats afterwards. Right. You know, a little little nightcap with your dinner. <laughs> I'm, you know, from their standpoint, I mean, that's probably a, that's probably a luxury. Yeah, it'd be a delicacy, I'm sure. Well, there you go, folks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, and, and I want to kind of touch on a little bit the one that you saw. You saw the first two, and then I think you were like three or four years later, you saw the gray one. Uh, four, what what do you think the distance? Oh, it was 14 years later? Yeah, it was in 88. Oh, okay. What the distance was between... Yeah, the geographic distance. I'm just wondering if they could have been uh, related oh. to each other. Uh, no, that was about 200 miles south. Okay. I mean, you know, of course, it is it is possible, but I don't think it was the same group. That group... Um, they would move back and forth from Mount Rainier to that Puget Sound area. They had they had a circuit that they would move annually. Okay. And the gray one that you saw, the one 14 years later, what uh, what was it doing? It was it just standing there? Was it getting something out of the river? Um, we don't know. I mean, it all happened so fast. You know, I, I come around the bend on the road, was looking at the water. And I glanced up, saw the movement, and, and apparently the creature had been just standing there at the edge of the water. And as the car appeared, it took a couple of steps, you know, grabbed a tree and was gone in the brush. Wow. And there was, I think you said, two other people in the car saw it. Right, yeah. And and I, when I stopped, everybody's, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the guys, they were, my girlfriend at the time, she wasn't looking. She was looking down at a book. So... Uh, but the guys in the car, they were paying attention. I said, nobody say anything. I gave them paper and, and, and pencils. I said, draw what you saw. And, and and they drew exactly the same thing what I saw. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you ever stay in contact with either of those two guys? One, one, well, yeah, actually, I do. Okay. Do you guys ever talk about it? or? Not much. I mean, one of the guys I, I tried getting... Uh, to come on the show. He probably will at some point. It's just been kind of hard to, you know, to coordinate his time. You know, everybody gets busy with their lives. and Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and the other one's deaf, so uh, I don't think we'd be able to get him on the show. Okay. But I do stay in well, touch with him. Well, that's good. Yeah. Well, and there have been um, a lot of reports from <clears throat> even up in Canada where people have seen them just by a river or a creek. 
Yeah, it's very common, actually. And, well, think of the name of this show, Creek Devil. Oh, there you it go. got the name somehow, right? Well, and again, that one comes from Northern California here. That was one of the Native American terms for the creatures. I think it was, wasn't the Hoopas? That was one of their names. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right, yes. Yeah, from uh, John Green's book. Yep, exactly. So, you know, there's a reason behind, you know, terms like that. What, um, you know, I'm thinking about there's the, there's a video of one of these, and we've talked about it in the past, there's like a, uh, a wedding ceremony or something going on. This was in upstate New York. And one of the little ones was climbing up around the tree. Do we get any reports of people um, seeing these things in the trees? Uh, occasionally, not a real, not a lot, but occasionally. We've interviewed a few people that have seen them like that. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and I can't remember. And off it, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say it would have to be a substantial tree or a tree that, or it would just be the the little. You know the youngsters that be up in the tree. Yeah, the couple of people off the top of my head. I'm trying to was trying to remember, um, and I can't. I'd have to go back and look look at notes to see who we had interviewed, who had seen you know the creatures. I, I think I think Q was one of them. Um, I'd have to go back and listen to his his in, uh, encounter story, but it, that was a juvenile, I believe, and. Um, I think I think everybody that I've talked to that has made uh, that statement that they saw, you know, one or two of them in a tree, they were all juveniles. Yeah. Okay. I know it kind of makes sense. Right. Okay. Sharon from the UK wants to know. Um, she says, "Do these creatures ride between box carts on trains, using that as a means of traveling?" I'm assuming, I'm assuming the box carts are either the what we would call box cars, or maybe she's talking about, but it doesn't really matter. Do we have any reports, or what are your thoughts about these creatures using trains as a as a method of, uh, you know, from traveling? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I've I've heard that before, um, but I can't recall interviewing anyone who actually saw it. Um, I did interview a guy that worked on a railroad years ago and they talked about some of the remote areas in southern oregon seeing the creatures from the train but not on the train well that would kind of make sense because railroads go through very remote areas and again path of least resistance i mean it would make perfect sense for these things to and i've worked I didn't work on the railroad, at least at this one time, but I worked uh, building fences as a teenager, and we got a contract with one of the local railroads here in Oregon. And you can hear, you can feel the trains coming. I mean, we were way up in the mountains. Long ways away. Yes, and you can hear them. And we had built this thing that would, you know, it was basically wheels, four wheels with axles and then some support structure, and we put all of our gear on there. And it would just roll along about two, three, four miles an hour, which is perfect because it beats carrying this stuff. But you would hear the trains 
and then you'd unpack everything, you'd tear this thing apart, set it on the side of the tracks, and wait. Mm-hmm. And it could be five or ten minutes. And you think, I guess, I, maybe I didn't hear that. <laughs> and then just then, Here it comes. you know, it might come around. Here it comes, yeah. Well, if you recall, even, even old stories, you know, from 1882, the Jacko story, uh, that was on a railroad line. Yeah, that's right. So what are... What are some of the stories that you've heard in in Southern Oregon where, you know, the, the engineers or whoever it was, the staff, had seen these things? Oh, it's been a long time since I... It was just the one report. I, I'm sure there are others. Uh, the one guy we interviewed, but um, he worked on, on the train, and, and I can't remember the area. I'd have to look at it on the map because he, he said. Um, but this was Southern Oregon. And, and he would talk about, you know, when the trains would run through those very remote areas, occasionally they would see one or more of them. Now, that brings up the whole uh, dash cam thing. I'm sure they didn't have them, you know, back in the day. But if anybody works on the railroad, if you're an engineer or brakeman or whatever, um, you might want to think about, you know, if you're interested, get a, get a dash cam. Maybe they already do. Who knows? Yeah, I don't really know. I think uh, I think the locomotives. I you know the the railroads themselves. You know whether it's UP or whoever it is, Burlington Northern, they all have dash cams on the on the locomotives, uh, both fore and aft, just to because you know things happen. There's there's uh, train wrecks and. You know, derailments and that sort of thing. And that's an invitation I'd like to make to anybody who works on with railroad companies. Uh, if you've seen things out there, get a hold of us. You know, we'll keep you anonymous, but uh, we'd certainly love to hear, you know, what you're seeing out there. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I'm just thinking, I'm just, it's just kind of run, rolling through my head now. The locations where the railroads are here in Oregon, Northern California, Washington, and again, you know, they go through the Cascades. They go through areas that are absolutely, uh, you know, they're just very remote, perfect for these things. Yeah, exactly. And trains have been around a long time, so, you know, the creatures are fairly used to them. Yeah, that's a good point. And And it goes... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say it kind of goes back to... Um, when people say, well, I've never seen one of the creatures, I'm like, well, no, they see us every day. They see our planes, they, see, they hear the trains, the locomotives, the cars. You know, the thing about trains, unlike, you know, say cars or other types of vehicles, they're, they could be viewed as somewhat unobtrusive. I mean, granted, yes, they've, they've cut lines through these forested areas, but they've been there a long time. And you think about it, the train doesn't do much except make noise occasionally. You know, if they're using their their horns or whatever, but as they're just moving through areas, that's all they're doing. Um, they're not doing anything to the environment other than just passing through. So, you know, other than a curiosity, they may not bother the creatures. Yeah, that's a real good point. And the trains never stop, and no. people getting out and going camping or anything like that, or or what have you. Yeah, they're just passing through it. It's probably, you know, little more than. You know, going down and watching the river flow to them. I mean, they've watched them for so many years. You know, they know that that 
that uh, mechanical thing isn't going to do anything. It's just going from point A to point B through the area. Very predictable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have somebody named Renee, and Renee say, would like to thank us for answering uh, my last question. The first question I have is, have you ever been to the exact location that Patty was filmed at? Yes. And how does it look today versus, I mean, is there any resemblance at all to, can you pick out any features um, that were in the film you can see? You can see, when you, when you look past the creature in the film, you see there's a, a little hillside back there and some trees on it. You can pick out some of those trees. Okay. Well, that's very good. Now, they have logged above that on that side, so a lot of that's changed. But the film site area, it's pretty brushy now. Yeah. Okay. And Renee's second question is, what is the name of the book that President Roosevelt mentions Bigfoot in? It's Wilderness Hunter. And he actually doesn't mention Bigfoot. It's actually written up as a, as a goblin story. Well, wouldn't that make sense? Because Bigfoot wasn't a term back then. Correct. Let's see. There was. Okay. It's. it's uh, oh, geez. There's actually a, a different name for it too, but it's. Um, doggone it! I can't remember offhand. Uh, and I've got the book, but it's not on my desk. Um, but Wilderness Hunter was the uh, the main title, and it's only it's only a couple pages. The story in the book. Yeah, that's um, but, but goblin. I, I like that. I mean, that's that's a yeah. very accurate description for that for that era. Well, and he mentions that you know he, he thought you know that Bauman was probably of Germanic descent, and was no doubt raised with all these ghost and goblin stories. You know, from his Germanic background. Um, so whether that's what he was attributing to the creature or not, he didn't know. Uh, whereas, you know, the story was probably a direct relation to what happened, you know, to him. Yeah, you think about it. What's going through your mind when you have, you know, at least here in this 21st century, if you see a Bigfoot, whether you believed in him just prior to that or not, it doesn't matter. You have some context to put it in. I'm curious about people like Bauman and others who have no context. It's like, what is that thing? Yeah, I mean, how would, what would you label it? Gorilla? That wasn't a word back then? No, in fact, or, you know, at that time period, they weren't because gorillas weren't discovered until uh, it was around 1907, I believe. Yeah, so... <laughs> I was going to look it up I, real quick and oh you know what hold on just a moment I will look up there's, there, was an in, there was a couple of interesting references that they talk about in that story oops let's see okay well maybe it's not as easy to find as I thought I, I it's, it's in my first book and I, oh wait a minute you know what been a while since I've opened the book because it should be listed by roughly the year and it isn't. <laughs> oh boy, okay, well, yeah, 
I mean, there was there were some very interesting pieces in that. You know, especially when they, they you know, they, it, there's some details like when they, you know, oh, wait a minute, here it is. I'm wrong. Okay. Oh, okay, now, for the book, the book title is Trips of a Ranchman and the Wilderness Hunter. And it's pages uh, 725 to 728. And you can buy the Wilderness Hunter by itself. And I didn't realize this till I bought a copy. The story's not in that. What you want to find is the book called uh, Trips of a Ranchman and the Wilderness Hunter. I think that was published 1892. Oh, I wonder why it's not in the... Uh... Well, you know, I think, I think when things get republished, you know, there, there are changes. Yeah, right. And I'm not sure. I mean... Uh, yeah, he's okay. So Roosevelt says, uh, okay, he says, um, okay, he's talking about people who live on lived on the wilderness uh, on the frontier. They said they lead lives that are too hard and practical, and have too little imagination in things spiritual and supernatural. He says I've heard just a few ghost stories while living on the frontier, and those few were of a very uh, perfectly commonplace type he says now, I'm not sure what commonplace ghost stories there were but that's what he said he says but I once listened to a goblin story which after uh, which rather impressed me so it was told by a grizzled weathered beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman who was born and had passed all of his life on the frontier so he must have believed what he said for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain parts of the tale and he says, but he was of Germanic ancestry and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghost and goblin lore. Um, so, you know, I, he, that's was, that was Roosevelt's supposition was that, you know, this was where Bauman was coming from telling the story. Yeah, and I found it interesting. You know, here you're being interviewed by, I wish I knew... Uh, at that time, well, that would have been pre, before he was president. Right, right. Yes, as well. He was okay. still still younger and making his trips out to the frontier. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a question from Daniel, and uh, I like this question. Daniel says, hey, I found a deer leg with a hoof in the dense woods. No hide, no meat, no marks on the bone. I think it's a year or less old. Could this have been done by a bear or a mountain lion? And I think uh, implicit is in there is could it you know could one of our uh, favorite topic creatures be involved? Well, we don't really have a way to specifically know, but I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I was just thinking, you know, think animals like bears and, and big cats, and and of all things, porcupines will chew on bones, so you'll see teeth marks. Um, if it was, if you find any kind of knife impressions, and it was a person, uh, if it was snapped, you know, it could be one of these creatures, right? And no hide, no meat, and no marks on the bone. I, I guess now it depends on how old it was too. I mean, was the meat rotted away or was it fresh? Uh, he says I think it was a year or less old. Yeah, see if it's any so, any more than two three weeks, the meat's going to be pretty much eaten up by you know, other animals or even just microbes. Yeah, yeah, sure. 
um, you know, the maggots will go in there and make a, <laughs> oh. they'll make a meal of that. Yeah, very, short, very quickly. Short. Well, and that's part of the problem with bones and fossilization in general in much of North America is, and you've talked about this, the, the environment just isn't conducive to preserving bones and, and especially fossils. Things go, yeah, it's not, it's not set up for fossilization. I mean, it has to be usually, either things have to be buried very quickly. Uh, oxidization is what causes the breakdown so quickly. So if you remove the oxygen, so if something sinks to the bottom of a lake, for instance, it'll last much longer than being out in the open because there isn't the, isn't the oxygen there, you know, to, uh, to oxidize material and, and rot it away. So, um, but, but forested areas and jungle areas, uh, are, are probably the least conducive environments to fossilization. Well, and that would explain why I don't think, uh, we're talking about, I'm just going to go with uh, chimpanzees here. I don't think there's very, very little, if any, uh, fossilized remains of chimps. I don't know. What What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't believe there is much. Um, of course, you know, I know people say, well, you know, you could go back in history, and but um, you'd have to go back to a time before those kind of vegetative conditions existed in a region, you know, for there to be fossils. And then were these creatures present during that time frame? Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Uh, this is a conversation that you and I had the other day. And I don't know if it's in one of your books or not. Maybe it is. But this is the, and it's a weird interesting story where you and your friends were on Mount St. Helens and you're sliding down the pumice. Right. It's in my, in my second can, book in search of the unknown. It is. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Cause that was pretty interesting. Well, to give a little background on it and I've talked about it once before. Um, after I met green and Hinden and those guys, you know, back in 1975, um, you know, I went back to my, resumed my normal high school life and, uh, I got a call one afternoon from a guy <clears throat> who identified himself as a college student in Portland, Oregon. He said he had gotten my number from John Green and he was writing some kind of a paper on Bigfoot and, uh, he wanted to talk to people who had encounters with creatures. Um, so we talked and I, I told him, you know, what I'd seen. And after that, we just chatted for a bit, um, probably not too different age. I think I was, I was about 18 at that time. So, um, anyway, we struck up a conversation and he says, Hey, uh, have you ever been to the site in Mount St. Helens where the miners were attacked in 1924? And I said, no, I hadn't. I mean, I really hadn't had a huge amount of involvement topic wide at that point. I mean, you know, we looked in our own areas for several years at that point, but, um, uh, hadn't been, you know, out, side looking at any of these historic places so he says well listen if you ever want to go there and you should he says you should go take a look at it. it's an interesting place he gave me instructions on how to find it he said we were up there recently we found the location where the cabin had existed of course it burned down in the 60s but they found uh, where it was located and uh so after we got done talking i i talked to my friends and i said hey you know we should go do this 
So we decided we planned the trip, and this was in November of 1976. It was in our senior year of high school. So we, uh, my friend Scott borrowed his dad's brand spanking new VW van, and six of us load up, and we took off. So we we got to Spirit Lake kind of late the first evening. And uh, it was probably, you know, around 10 o'clock or so when we got there. And and nothing, there was nobody around the area. Uh, the ranger station, I think, was closed. And, you know, right, nobody at Spirit Lake. So uh, there was a big parking lot across the street from it. And we decided to go on the far side of that and try to set up a camp. But it was so windy, we couldn't even get a fire started. So we decided to go out hiking around. We were bored. And it was super bright moonlight that night. And, uh, you know, that pumice is light gray, so, you know, it just kind of lit up the whole area. So we didn't need flashlights or anything, like we ever carried any anyway, but um, we we hiked up this slope. And uh, we discovered, none of us had ever been around pumice before, we discovered it can be rather slippery. So we decided, uh, I don't know what what prompted this, but... um, it was probably Milo who started <laughs> sliding down these slopes on his backside. So the rest of us decided to do all this. So we're having having a ball, you know, sliding down, you know, a couple hundred feet down these slopes. And we'd hike back up. And we had one spot where we'd, we'd sit down and start from. And that's where we'd slide down. And of course, you know, teenage boys, you know, we're up there making a bunch of noise and, and all this racket and stuff. So uh, at some point we decided, oh, we discovered that the pumice, because it's it's volcanic glass, it had eaten the, the seats out of our jeans, so we're walking around with our butts hanging out in the air, <laughs> quite literally and figuratively. Um, we figured we'd better go back to the van and change our pants, right? So we get back to the van, and we were, I don't know, a couple hundred yards from the van, so it was a little bit of a hike, but nothing too serious. And we get back, back there and discover that the keys are gone. And then Scott also noticed that his wallet was gone. Well, we pooled all of our money and had Scott hang on to it. He was the responsible guy of the group. And uh, so we thought, well, crap, we got to go back and search for the keys in, in his wallet. We got nothing up here. So we hiked back up there. And now, uh, you know, we didn't see anything on the ground when we headed back, you know, and, and the wallet would have stuck out. There was nothing on the ground. And when we got back up there, we we started doing some searching. And lo and behold, right there where we had sat down to slide down this slope were the keys and wallet, like they'd been neatly placed there. And Scott says, that wasn't there when we left. I said, yeah, I don't remember anything being in that spot. It was it was a fairly conspicuous spot. You would have seen it. So uh, we, I started looking around. And not far from there, maybe 25 feet or so, we found a line of Sasquatch tracks. And they they measured about 19 inches, but given the slippage, uh, they were probably, you know, 17, 18-inch feet, actually. And and there were hundreds and hundreds of them. They, we, we could look up the slope as far as you could see in that bright light, and you could see the line of tracks going up. They were going uphill. So we took some pictures and, and uh, sent some of the pictures to John Green, and his response was, his only response was, did you take that with a flash? Well, yeah, it was at night. Of course we took it with a flash. But um, very odd, very odd. I mean, we, to this day, are, are kind of puzzled about, well, you know, the keys and wallet weren't there. But then after we left, apparently were placed back in that spot. 
yeah, it's it's kind of baffling. I mean, it's um, they, they must have been watching you guys, and he, exactly probably chuckling at these bunch of knuckleheads, you know, doing this silly stuff. I bet they were. I know they absolutely would know what frolicking is all about, having fun. And, you know, maybe as young Sasquatch or they had kids of their own had seen, you know, they would know that you're just having fun. How did they know that you lost your keys in your wallet and how did they know to put, I mean, that is just. That was a good question. A yeah, it's, it's one of those things you kind of scratch your head about. You know, all these years later, we're still scratching our heads over that whenever it comes up in conversation. Yeah, it almost seems uh, kind of like a benevolent thing or I don't know, or, or maybe trying to lure us back to the spot. I don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. There you go. That's that's where I'm going. Yeah. They were, they were baiting us. <laughs> I don't know. Don't know. I, I don't know that was, you know, benevolent or any other you know, reason maybe it was just curiosity. I don't know. Well, that would make sense because I can't. I don't know. I guess it's it's you really can't speculate, but I just can't imagine them going. Oh yeah, you know they're going to be back they're, here. They're going to need gonna, these. <laughs> they're going to need these. Yeah, I don't know what they are, but I think they're important here. We'll just put them right here. Uh, <laughs> you know, they may have picked them up, looked at them, and just put them back down. That actually, yeah, that kind of makes sense, too. It makes me wonder, you know, when we're doing all that sliding, they must have come out of Scott's pocket at some point, which is odd. I mean, because he'd have his wallet in his back pocket and the keys in his front pocket. So, but, you know, things happen. Um, but while we were doing it, they probably grabbed him because they weren't there when we left to go back to the van. Exactly. And then, lo and behold, there we, they were when we returned. And what did you say? It's about a 15-minute hike to get yeah. from that location to the van? About 15 minutes one way. Yeah. Huh. That's uh, that's very, very interesting. And we never saw the creature. I mean, there were trees. The trees that were around, they were relatively small. You know, dug fir and spruce. They were probably, you know, five, six feet high. And, and uh, not thick. It was kind of sparse. I mean, there were little patches of trees. You know, where, where anybody or anything could have hidden behind them. Uh, and, like, we weren't really paying attention anyway. Yeah, that was, it. Yeah, I was just going to say, you probably really weren't looking for these things. Yeah. And I think... We were too busy clowning around. Yeah, right. And I'm guessing these creatures just remain perfectly motionless. You're not going to see them. Yeah, right. I mean, they could have could have been standing right there and, you know, none of us would have noticed. I mean, unless it was right out in the open, you know, moving or something, but we didn't see anything. Well, yeah, they could have been sitting down at that at the bottom of the 200 feet and go, come on. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and the tracks were not there when we first went to the location. You, you know, they were very obvious. All you do is start kind of just scanning around a little bit. I mean, very little. And, and, and there they were. Hundreds of them? What's that? You said there was hundreds of them? There were hundreds of tracks. Oh, yeah, as far as the eye could see. We could, and it was just, just one set of tracks or maybe one, different creatures? One set. Well, one we, set. Didn't, we didn't look for more than one, we, but we saw one set. And it was going yeah. up a slope that was probably, geez, I don't know. It was probably 50, 60 degree 
degree grade slope going up the hill and they were just going right on up that slope you could see oh, I'll bet a half a mile or more up that slope and, and you could see the track they kept going as far as you could see <laughs> so did anybody comment this other guy the other people that you're with are like hey oh, uh, it was a holy crap moment yeah believe me yeah because I would think that would be a discussion uh, for quite some time. Of it was, why? Yeah, but you why know, do they put the keys here? It was it was funny though. I mean, uh, we spent the night there, and and uh, first light we drove on up to the trailhead and hiked up to Windy Pass, and then over onto the plains of Abraham to where the cabin was, but uh, or had been. It wasn't there. I mean, we the only thing that was left that you could find a few nails and things where you know they had built it, but. Uh, and we never saw or heard anything else up there, but that first night. And this was, uh, and you were now. Were you guys close to the lodge of Spirit Lake? Well, let me think. Yeah, it was right there. We were well. The ranger station on Spirit Lake was right across the street from where we were. We were in the big parking lot that used to be across the street from that. Oh, I was just curious if you had ever met. Uh, uh, Harry Truman. <laughs> oh, no, no. No, I never heard of him until um, I was stationed at Fort Lewis and, you know, when Mount St. Helens was getting ready to erupt. Uh, and then, yeah, he became quite a character for a little bit. Yeah, for a little bit, yeah. Then he got buried 100 feet under ash. Yeah. <clears throat> now, the Plains of Abraham, are they, were they there before or are they oh, yeah. a result of no, the, no. they were? That was okay. that was part of it. It's a it's like a big shelf that goes along the eastern side of Mount St. Helens. It runs kind of north south. In fact, oh, okay. in fact, Ape Canyon, uh, the head of Ape Canyon is right near where the cabin used to exist. So when people say and and they say it very clearly, Fred Beck says it very clearly in his story um, that that's where the cabin was. And you know, if you navigate to the head of Ape Canyon just before you get to it, that's where the cabin was. Now, i got to ask the obvious question. There's Ape Canyon and there's Ape something else, right? Caves or something? Yeah, that's big, totally different. Oh, it is. Okay, okay. so Ape Canyon so, was named after the miners' incident. Uh, that's what I the thought. The Ape Caves are, it's a lava tube, and that's on the south side of Mount St. Helens, and that was a Boy Scout troop named that after it was discovered. Uh, they named it after the story. Uh, of the miners. Oh, they did. Yeah. Okay, so there's only that kind of relationship. That's the only relationship, but, yeah. Yeah, so Ape Canyon was a direct result of <clears throat> it was Fred Beck. Well, there you go, folks. <laughs> yeah, and that's a, that's an interesting story as well. It is. Um, yeah. I imagine. Do you know if it's available in a book form, or can people pick that up uh, as a PDF web? Well, or? I, I actually, I, I transcribed it verbatim into my book, Notes from the Field. Um, so it's in there. Oh, okay. Yeah, because that was really a big deal. And what I heard was when they came, I think they had this oath amongst themselves, we're not going to say anything, and we know how those oaths go. Um, yeah, it was the leader of the group. 
the one that, that Fred, you know, the pseudonym he gave him was Hank. wasn't his actual name. Uh, he was the one that sort of got him to swear that nobody was going to talk about it. And then he's the one who went and started blabbing to the Rangers <laughs> in the <Yeah>. media. <laughs> and then I guess I had heard, I don't know, what are your thoughts, that there's actually a posse that was formed that they were going to actually go up and get those things. I think they did, but nothing ever happened with it, I believe. I mean, back in those days, that was a ways to go. And when they went in there, it was going up the Lewis River. And that was interesting, too, because Beck talks about uh, when they would follow the Lewis River up to that area, then on, on occasion they would find footprints. So, Oh, really? So they, they knew something was in that region. Okay. And, and think about it. You, you send a posse up there, especially after they've already had this fine experience with humans yeah well and they they shot one and it fell into the canyon so yeah probably not the thing you'd want to go do and those creatures are going to know miles before you get to where their location is oh yeah yeah they're just going to hide or you know maybe somebody gets a rock in the back of the head <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and it was interesting. I mean, I'm looking at the story now uh, in my book, and I said, like I said, I um, I transcribed it from Fred Beck's little booklet that's not not available anymore. But uh, he wrote, actually, his son wrote it. Um, let's see. I was curious. I was going to look to see where he talked about. Uh, where they I was looking where they found tracks but um, it was it, now this is interesting and we've heard this and we've got a recording of this now get this he says that uh, and he calls him Hank he says that Hank though apprehensive was still determined to go into the go up to the mining claim he said we'd been hearing noises in the evening f for about a week they said they'd been hearing noises for about a week when they were in there. We heard shrill, peculiar whistling each evening. We would hear it coming uh, from one ridge and then hear an answer whistle, an answering whistle from another ridge. We also heard a sound which I could best describe as booming, thumping sound, uh, just like something was hitting itself on its chest. And uh, if you recall from Doug's interview from the previous segment. Um, I thinking of that, he yeah. talked about that, and then we have a recording of somebody else who recorded. Um, and when you listen to the recording, it sounds just like a gorilla, you know, drumming on his chest. Right. And we've, and there's, you know, we've heard other reports, people talking, all these sounds that you just mentioned that these guys heard, this is all stuff that is common. You know, I mean, that was back in the 20s, and right. you still hear it today. And my, apolo my apologies to listeners. We, we, can't, we can't post that recording. We don't have permission to do that, so we can't put it on the website. Yeah, that's true. Sorry about that's that. That's true. Yeah. But you can just go out into the wilderness yourself and sit around at night, and, you know, who knows? Maybe you'll hear it. Yeah, and don't mistake it for a grouse or a woodpecker. Uh, yeah. And, and this <clears> sound would be something very different. Now, I've never heard that, but I've heard, you know, the well, first time I contacted you, it was that loud, sharp whistle mm -hmm. that in a 
place that it shouldn't have been. And the whistling is very common. That's what the Native Americans, uh, that's how they represent it in their uh, ceremonial masks. You know, when you have the wild man, it's the pursed whistling lips most often. Yeah. No, I was, it was interesting. I was with a friend of mine, and he, he, he was a school teacher, but he worked for a service in the summers. And he absolutely knows more about this than you and I combined because he knows they don't exist. <laughs> but he was the one that, when we heard that whistle, um, he was like, what was that? And I think he may have phrased it a bit differently. But uh, it was very, very peculiar. So to catch his attention for somebody who's a total skeptic, uh, pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. I'm sure people hear things like that a lot and just, I, I would, if I didn't know anything about it. If I heard a whistle, I think, oh, there's somebody else up here hiking around or whatever. It sounds like a person. It sounds it does. very, very loud. Mm -hmm. um, but it was like, yeah, there's, there's nobody within, you know, 14 miles in any direction. Right. Um, and then, you know, then there's all the other, the screams. Well, Lisa's, Lisa's recording is absolutely fantastic with those screams in the night off in the distance. Mm -hmm. The dog is terrified. The dog knows stuff. You know, take your dog with you. They know, they know things. Yeah. And we, we got that, uh, audio cleaned up really good. Adam did a superb job on it. So. Uh, oh yeah we'll isolate some and of those. he said it was creepy he did and we can isolate some of those vocals maybe you know put those on the website yes absolutely we're doing some work on the web actually we're doing some work with our hosting company to there's they have some issues that they're trying to work out so um, our patience is running thin but hopefully they'll get it fixed pretty soon yeah, and you said if they don't, we can go with a different platform, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, do we... So here... Oh, go ahead. A, um, oh, we got a... From Daniel, again, he says, Southern Sierra, 6,200 feet. If Bigfoot leaves the area in July, are they most likely to go up in elevation, which would be a different mountain? Um what are your thoughts as far as how these things will move around? Well, you know, I've mentioned before that um, in areas where I've found prints in the wintertime, uh, the, the tracks appear to be going up in elevation. They're not coming down. So it's reasonable to assume then that they are moving to higher elevations. And again, a lot of that's going to depend on food. They're going to follow food. Right, right. There's no sense. Um, they're not out on a scenic walk. They're they got business on their mind. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to find. There was. Well, let me see. There was a gentleman who made a comment, and I wanted to get his at least his screen name correct. Uh, let me go here. Sorry. Oops. Try this again. There we go. Oops. Getting in. Oh, darn it. Sorry about that, folks. Trying to trying to not do this where I'm getting a bunch of audio going. There was a gentleman who commented 
and and I think it was about um, fast elk. Uh, we'd like to invite, if you're listening, we'd like to invite you as a guest on the show. We'd like to hear your viewpoints and, and your encounters. Because um, he was talking about, um, and I think that was uh, Lorena in uh, Southern Oregon with the elk. And, uh, you know, oh, that's ab- right. about the time period of, of, of cleaning the animal and everything. I, first of all, there weren't any other people there. There weren't any other hunters and her father was disabled, and she was, I think, didn't she say eight months pregnant? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they'd shot the elk, and then when they got there, um, there was little left, more left except the the intestines. Everything else was gone, and and those leg bones were snapped. They They weren't cut. There were no knife marks or anything on that stuff. Well, and the time frame was... It was short. 20 minutes something like possibly that. as much as 30 but yeah. probably and it, it wasn't i mean what was left of that was and we haven't i don't think we've posted that those pictures anywhere but it was just you know i've i've um you know worked on a ranch at one time yeah. and we would have professional uh you know when when you slaughter the cattle the beef it takes a little while, and basically that's what is left. Yeah, I, I, I agree with him. I mean, sure, two men could easily do it in 30 to 60 minutes. Um, you know, absolutely. But you have to look at the context, all the other things, you know. And again, there, there were, <clears throat> excuse me, no other people present. Yeah, exactly. And that that is absolutely critical. The context is totally important. But we would, we would love to hear you know your outlook and, and your own encounters so uh, you know please get a hold of us and the, the best way to do that uh, is to shoot me an email questions plural at creekdevil.com and we'd love to hear from you and even if you just want to chat and don't necessarily want to get on the show um, either way we, we would definitely like to hear from you absolutely we're starting to really run a little short on time, Tom. you have any other questions or things you want to bring up? Um, the only thing I want to bring up is today is July 3rd, so I want to wish everybody, at least in uh, in the U.S., a very happy and very uh, safe 4th of July. Absolutely. And, uh, and thank you. We'll talk to you folks uh, very soon. All right. Well, that'll do it for this segment, folks. Stay tuned for the third segment. Um before too long, we're going to have, uh, of course, we always want to make a special uh, mention of Cam, you know, from Dixie Cryptid. Uh, if you enjoy our show and haven't heard his, by all means, go there. He's a great guy. And he's going to be doing some uh, narrations for us. So uh, we don't have him yet. I mean, he's a very busy guy, but he is going to do them for us. So um, look forward to that. And everyone, stay tuned for the third segment. Welcome. This is a series of six stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one, Ape-like Monsters. Sightings of monstrous ape-like creatures lurking in the darkness of forests and mountainous regions of the world 
have been reported since the Middle Ages. In 840 A.D., Agobard, the Archbishop of Lyons, told of three such demons, giant people of the forest and mountains, who were stoned to death after being displayed in chains for several days. In his chronicles, Abbot Ralph of Coggeshell Abbey, Essex, England, wrote of a strange monster whose charred body had been found after a lightning storm on the night of St. John the Baptist in June 1205. He stated that a terrible stench came from the beast with monstrous limbs. Villagers of the Caucasus Mountains have legends of an ape-like wild man going back for centuries. The same may be said of the Tibetans living on the slopes of Mount Everest and the Native American tribes inhabiting the northwestern United States. The Gilyaks, a remote tribe of Siberian native people, claim that there are animals inhabiting the frozen forests of Siberia that have human feelings and travel in family units. Based on the eyewitness descriptions of hundreds of reliable individuals around the world who have encountered these creatures, it would seem that the creatures are more human-like than ape-like or bear-like. For one thing, these giants are repeatedly said by witnesses to have breasts and buttocks. Neither apes nor bears have buttocks, nor do they leave flat-footed human-like footprints. In 1920, the term abominable snowman was coined through a mistranslation of the Tibetan word for the mysterious ape-like monster Yeti, wild man of the snow. For the next two decades, reports of the creature were common in the Himalayan mountain range, but it was not until the close of World War II, 1939-45, that world attention became focused on the unexplained, human-like bare footprints that were being found at great heights and freezing temperatures. The Himalayan activity reached a kind of climax in 1960 when Sir Edmund Hillary, conqueror of Mount Everest, led an expedition in search of the elusive Yeti and returned with nothing shown for his efforts but a fur hat that had been fashioned in imitation of the snowman's scalp. The human-like creature, whether sighted in the more remote wooded or mountainous regions of North America, South America, Russia, China, Australia, or Africa, is believed by some anthropologists to be a two-footed mammal that constitutes a kind of missing link between humankind and the great apes, for its appearance is more primitive than that of Neanderthal. The descriptions given by witnesses around the world are amazingly similar. Height, six to nine feet, weight, 400 to 1,000 pounds, eyes black, dark fur or body hair from one to four inches in length is said to cover the creature's entire body with the exception of the palms of its hands, the soles of its feet, and its upper facial area, nose, and eyelids. Some question the existence of giant ape-like creatures because there is so little physical evidence besides casts of huge human-like footprints. Some researchers respond by pointing out that Mother Nature keeps a clean house. Scavengers soon eat the carcasses of the largest forest creatures, and the bones are scattered. Zoologist Ivan T. Sanderson suggested that if these beings are members of a subhuman race, they may gather up their dead for burial in special caves. 
Dr. Jean Marie Theresa Kaufman agreed that the creatures might bury their dead in secret places. It may be, she theorized, that they may throw the corpses of the deceased into the rushing waters of the mountain rivers or into the abysses of rocky caverns. Others remind the skeptical that it is not unusual for certain of the higher animals to hide the bodies of their dead. Accounts of the legendary elephant's graveyard are well known, and in Ceylon the phrase, to find a dead monkey, is used to indicate an impossible task. Proving the existence of such creatures may seem to many scientists to be an impossible task, but persistent searchers for undeniable evidence of the ape-like beings feel that proof is right around the next corner in some darkened forest. Delving Deeper Reports of a large ape-like creature in the United States and the Canadian provinces are to be found in the oral traditions of native tribes, the journals of early settlers, and accounts in regional frontier newspapers, but wide public attention was not called to the mysterious beast until the late 1950s, when road-building crews in the unmapped wilderness of the Bluff Creek area north of Eureka, California, began to report a large number of sightings of North America's own abominable snowman. Once stories of giant human-like monsters tossing around construction crews' small machinery and oil drums began hitting the wire services, hunters, hikers, and campers came forward with a seemingly endless number of stories about the shrill, squealing, seven-foot forest giant that they had for years been calling by such names as Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Wakwak, Oma, or Saskahavis. In North America, the greatest number of sightings of Bigfoot have come from the Fraser River Valley, the Strait of Georgia, and Vancouver Island, British Columbia, the Ape Canyon region near Mount St. Helens in southwest Washington, the Three Sisters Wilderness west of Bend, Oregon, and the area around the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation especially at the Bluff Creek watershed northeast of Eureka, California. In recent years, extremely convincing sightings of Bigfoot-type creatures have also been made in areas of New York, New Jersey, Minnesota, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Florida. Reports of Bigfoot-type creatures of California go back to at least the 1840s, when miners reported encountering giant, two-legged, beast-like monsters during the gold rush days. Sightings of the Oma, as the native tribes called them, continued sporadically until August 1958, when a construction crew was building a road through the rugged wilderness near Bluff Creek, Humboldt County, and discovered giant human-like footprints in the ground around their equipment. For several mornings running, the men discovered that something had been disturbing their small equipment during the night. In one instance, an 800-pound tire and wheel from an earth-moving machine had been picked up and carried several yards across the compound. In another, a 300-pound drum of oil had been stolen from the camp, carried up a rocky mountain slope, and tossed into a deep canyon. And in each instance, only massive 16-inch footprints with a 50 to 60-inch stride offered any clue as to the vandal's identity. When media accounts of the huge footprints were released, 
people from the area began to step forward to exhibit their own plaster casts of massive, mysterious footprints and to relate their own frightening encounters with hairy giants, stories that they had repressed for decades for fear of being ridiculed. Not to be outdone, Canadians began telling of their own startling accounts with Sasquatch, a tribal name for Bigfoot, that had been circulating in the accounts of trappers, lumberjacks, and settlers in the Northwest Territories since the 1850s. Long before the frontier folk discovered the giant of the woods, the Sasquatch had become an integral element in many of the myths and legends of the native people. Copyright The Gale Group, Inc. This article from Keep Media carried no author, citation, or date. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. Bigfoot hunter trusts his nose to find creature. Big Cypress Bayou near Jefferson, Texas. The motor sputtered, then died, and as the canoe drifted deeper into the swamp, gray tangles of bearded Spanish moss gave way to murky water and black cypress. Knuckles whitened, as Charles DeVore ripped the pull cord, his two-man canoe, three decades old and uneasy under the weight of three men, teetered dangerously with every tug. DeVore yanked the cord once more, then gave up. We'll just have to paddle, he said. There wasn't time to fix the propeller, and there wasn't time for precaution. The party pressed further into the swamp, because that's where Bigfoot was. Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, that elusive creature more often associated with the Pacific Northwest, lives among these knobby trees of the Big Cypress Bayou, DeVore will tell you. While other people have seen the creature, DeVore, well, he has smelled it. Of course, it's the most indescribably putrid, gosh-awful stench you can imagine. It's overpowering, DeVore said. DeVore has discussed that stench with dozens of East Texans who have reported brushes with the hairy hominid. He investigates sightings for the Texas Bigfoot Research Center, a Dallas-based group that documents close encounters throughout the state, most of them in the piney woods and big thicket. Although DeVore professes to be an amateur, he knows enough to understand the creature's ways. Bigfoot no longer scares me, said DeVore, of medium height and a bit paunchy at sixty-four. It might if uh, one was standing right over me, but they've never hurt anybody. I have a fear of wild hogs, wild dogs, and anything else out there that might bite my butt, but I really have no fear of Bigfoot. So DeVore paddles the bayou in the middle of the night, a coon hunting spotlight, and night vision camera at his side. He also wanders the forest trails he is bush-hogged near his trailer house. He sniffs the night air and listens for snapped twigs. It's a hobby, he said, a passionate interest. DeVore moved to the big cypress bayou, the slow-moving body of water that slinks between Lake of the Pines and Cattle Lake in 1990. A heart attack had forced him into early retirement. He told himself, I'm going to sit up here beside this water until the day I die and enjoy it. And that's just what he did. 
puttering around in his canoe with the little outboard motor that he had rigged to the back, or gliding across the deep green water in his kayak, exploring inlets and taking photographs. It's so beautiful out here, he said. Normally I'm not talking, and I sneak up on all kinds of wildlife. As he paddled deeper into the forest of submerged cypress trees, stained black by years of up-and-down water levels, thoughts returned to the rickety little canoe, then to the cold black water, and always to the possibility of sneaking up on the most elusive creature of them all. THE WAYS OF BIGFOOT Although Bigfoot is reportedly huge, seven or eight feet tall, and more than five hundred pounds, he is awfully hard to find. That's because he hates being around humans, believers say. When people such as Devorah go tromping into the woods, Bigfoot runs the other way. He lives in uninhabitable areas, especially around Sabine and Sulphur Rivers, the Big and Little Cypress Bayous, and Caddo Lake, where he is affectionately known as the Caddo Critter. We have more swampy areas in East Texas where humans do not live, Devor said. There's more sightings during the deer season than any other time because people are in the woods. With the advent of ATVs, outdoor enthusiasts can go farther into Bigfoot territory than ever before. In the past decade alone, the Texas Bigfoot Research Center has investigated five sightings in Harrison County, four in Panola County, and three in Russ County. Many of them involved hunters. One Longview man said that he tried to shoot the creature with his twenty-two. It let out a terrifying scream roar, and the squirrel hunter was so frightened he nearly wet himself, he reported. The Longview man's description of Bigfoot reflects many others in East Texas. Long brownish or black hair, the deathly scream roar or scream growl, and that stench which DeVore believes Bigfoot excretes, possibly from his armpits, when he feels threatened. Crystal Steiniger of Harleton says that she has experienced the smell and heard the screams. Steiniger and her colleagues with the East Texas Bigfoot Independent Study get together once a month to look for tracks and hair samples and record Bigfoot's noises on all-night camping trips. They used to attract the creature with Bigfoot calls, but they soon abandoned the calling devices because they made it too aggressive. If they're walking by us, we want to hear their normal, non-threatening type of vocalizations, she said. Adding later, I've heard solid screams. I've heard grunts. Kind of a grunt growl when you get a little too close. That was one of the best recordings. Of course, we got in our vehicle real quick. We didn't leave, but we got in our vehicle. The researchers have posted many of the recordings on their website, www.easttexasbigfoot.com. With so many reported encounters, skeptics quickly ask for conclusive proof. Hair samples or bones, for example. It's well known and not disputed that we have black bears in East Texas, DeVore counters. Nobody's ever seen a body or a skeleton of those. Predators in East Texas, which are numerous, take care of a body almost overnight. There are many theories. One, that they may carry their bodies off. After all, these are groups of them, 
It's not one lone animal. People have taken pictures of black bears, the skeptics note. One of those skeptics is Charlie Mueller, a Longview-based wildlife biologist for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. He managed the Cattle Lake Wildlife Area for eight years, and he said he's never seen evidence of Bigfoot's existence. If there's a bear out there, I'm going to find bear tracks. If there's a human out there, I'm going to find footprints, he said. But there's no Bigfoot tracks that I've seen. Mueller said he's studied supposed Bigfoot nests, but to him, they just looked like a pile of branches that had fallen from a tree during an ice storm. People let their imaginations take control a lot of times, and it's easy for someone to point out things that seem to be out of the ordinary that actually are not, he said. But to layman folks, people that don't know a lot about wildlife and the happenings of wildlife in their habitats, a lot of times they don't understand the normal things that go on. Fear of that kind of rebuttal, Devorah and Steiniger say, keeps many witnesses from coming forward. A lot of people will think they're nuts, or if they do mention it to somebody, they'll say, Oh, it was just a bear. You don't know what you're talking about, Steiniger said. They'll kind of blow it off and not take it seriously, because there's been a lot of people who have spent a lot of time out in the woods who have never seen a thing. They're happily trotting along without a clue, says Devorah. You're going to be ridiculed. You're thinking you're nuts, so most people are real reluctant to talk. If they are going to speak to you, you've got to be real quiet about it. Of course, being in the club gives me credibility. On the Bayou It was a perfectly clear October afternoon on the bayou, and Charlie Devore sliced his canoe through red and green water rippling under a light breeze. He had agreed to guide a reporter and photographer to the site of two Bigfoot encounters that he had investigated only a half a mile from his house. Because the land had changed hands, the only legal access was via boat, or, in this case, an old canoe. It's better to stick to the water this time of year, anyway, he said, because it's not too smart to traipse through the woods in the middle of deer season. As he guided the canoe, he recalled his first encounter. He hadn't even realized how close he'd come to meeting Bigfoot on that night as he walked the trails near his house. I'd always gone with four dogs, sometimes five, a couple of my own plus the neighbors. These dogs generally were not afraid of anything, he said. When I hit that stench, I looked around for the dogs and realized, hey, I was alone. He whistled and snapped his fingers, but the dogs wouldn't come. They just sat there squirming. I decided the dogs were smarter than me, so I went away, he said. The next night, the same thing. It went on occasionally for six weeks, he said. I wouldn't run into it every night, but... It got to be the old hat that, when I ran into the stink, I'd just turn around. He questioned hunters and outdoor enthusiasts who suggested that it might have been a wild hog. But DeVore knew better. He'd smelled hogs, and it wasn't the same. In 2002, DeVore heard about the annual Texas Bigfoot Conference in Jefferson. This year's event begins at 10 a.m. Saturday at Jefferson High School. 
Devor went, and then returned to the bayou with some answers, and more than a few new questions. After going to that conference and finding out, hey, these things have a stink, I started talking to people who had the stink on them before, he said, and the stink described was just too close to what I had experienced. At that point, I had already gotten curious about them. I talked to dozens of people who had experienced it. But stinking isn't believing, and Devor still hadn't seen one. He gunned the boat into the swamp, past hulking primeval trees and low-lying branches toward Bigfoot. A Close Encounter When the cypress became so thick they crowded out the sun, their reflections vanished from the bayou's surface. The water instantly was black. The canoe, further now from the channel's current, cut through a sheet of scum. Devor talked above the hum of the outboard motor. Suddenly it cut out, and he couldn't get it going again. Unseen crows shrieked in the abrupt silence. Devor took the paddle and rowed through Benton Lake, a small stagnant body of water that adjoined the bayou, until the trees kept him from going any further. Over there, he said, pointing to a spot on the lake's southwestern edge. The witness had been hunting deer as he crouched behind dense brush at mid-afternoon. He reported to the Texas Bigfoot Research Center that he noticed movement in the corner of his eye. Fifty yards away, the hunter told Devore that Bigfoot emerged from the water, stood up, looked side to side, then walked into the woods and disappeared. The hunter watched him for about two minutes. The creature was six feet tall and covered in hair from head to toe, and in the absence of direct sunlight he appeared to be completely black. Devore, having interviewed the hunter several times, deemed him a very credible witness. Finished with his story, Devore docked the canoe on a muddy bank that had built up along the edge of a massive cypress tree and fiddled with the motor. A piece of twine had wrapped itself in the propeller, and after he unwound it, it cranked on the first pole. He ordered the heaviest of his passengers into the bottom of the canoe, stabilizing it, and he took off for home. Though he did not see Bigfoot today, he knew it was only a matter of time. It exists, he said. Too many people have seen it. It exists. Story originally published by the Longview News Journal, Texas, West Ferguson, October 17, 2004. This is the end of story number two. Story number three. Fort Hall, Bannock County, Idaho, August 2012. A conversation I had. All the activity mentioned is southeast Idaho near Fort Hall, like the camping trip with rocks was around Fort Hall, Idaho, where there is a lot of Bannock and Shoshone Native Americans. Every fall I drive up Highway I-15 from Southern California to Montana to hunt with friends there. I tend to find myself stopping in Pocatello, Idaho for a motel and also visit a certain bar there. Twice I have run into a man I will call Gary, 
for this submission is without his knowledge. I had a casual conversation with Gary at the bar in November 2011. Now, before I go on, I want to mention we were drinking beer and no other kind of liquor is served there. He and I just happened to walk in about the same time and then started talking, so we were not intoxicated. Since I had met him a year prior, I felt like this was an instance of synchronicity, and maybe there was something special that he was about to share with me. So I asked him some questions. Not able to repeat the conversation verbatim, these are the answers and stories I got from him, which I wrote down an hour later when I got back to my motel room. I asked him if he was a Native American. He said yes, half Bannock Indian, and a tribal member. His age was early fifties. When I asked him if he had ever seen a Bigfoot, he snapped back a bit and then turned his back to me. I thought to myself, here's another person who might think I'm a nut job. But then Gary turned around slowly, and facing me, he said, Three times, he went on. I grew up in the Fort Hall, Idaho area. My earliest recollection was a camping trip as a small boy in the early 1960s. My father, cousin, and I were walking through a canyon and Something threw rocks the size of baseballs at us from afar. There was also the sound of timber cracking. My father told us we needed to leave the area as we are not wanted by the mountain people. We are the Agai people, meaning salmon eating, and we know all the good salmon runs. Tell me about seeing one. I saw one in the afternoon on a dirt path below me in a small canyon. The Bigfoot was dragging a sagebrush to erase his tracks and conceal his footprints. They will also step on stones when they can to avoid making tracks. Well, you mentioned three sightings you've had. Where? Around Eel River, Trinity Forks, Snake River. Some people ask if they are real, then why are there never any bones found? Do they bury their dead? Yes but in water, weighted down in rivers or ponds with stones. So we are talking about an animal that is shy, clever, and territorial, all signs of intelligent creature. They are more of a spirit than a human. And at this point, Gary seemed to lose interest and change the subject. I sensed the subject of Bigfoot was somewhat taboo for him to tell me about, and not meant for the non-tribal. Todd C. Homer, August 23rd, 2012 That's the end of story number three. Story number four. Kino Hill, Yukon Territory Kino Hill, Yukon Territory, Summer 2000 I'm not sure which summer it was, maybe five, six years back. The wife and I were returning from Kino Hill early one morning. Our coffee thermos was in the back of the truck, and it was my fault it was back there. She wanted coffee, so we stopped some miles before Elsa and got out to get the thermos and relieve myself on the side of the road. There was a stand of trees there, 
I wandered off a ways, walked way up there. I don't know just why I did that. It was there that I seen this bear sitting down at a carcass of elk. Maybe deer. Don't know what that carcass was for sure. Not much left of it. No rack. Mostly a skeleton. Maybe a doe. I'm thinking it was Black Bear at first, sitting down beside the remains, but that be some unusual Black Bear. Bears usually stand up and tear at their kill, and eat it standing up. This bear sat there, pulling at what was left of it. Way off in the distance, there be a fox pacing back and forth, awaiting its turn at the kill. And just then, my wife yelled at me to get myself back in the truck, the bear heard her and stood up on two legs, looking in my direction. I fell backwards a bit at its size. By God, I seen it was no bear. I believe it was a boke, and it had a piece of something from the carcass clutched in its hand. I don't know what. Looked like weeds. It stood there looking at my direction, and the fox took off at a dead run. The wife yelled again, and this boke started waving its arms up and down, and stomping forward on one leg at me. Damn, I couldn't make these legs of mine move. I seen that it was black, and it was naked except for hair around the usual male parts, chest, arms, and it was unshaved looking. The beard was long and scraggly with crud and stuff in the whiskers. It took a step to my direction and stomped a foot, waving its arms like a crazed man might if he was high on something. I fell back again and started crawling like a baby to the truck on my hands and knees, and finally was able to get up and run to the truck. I saw my wife looking big-eyed at me. Behind me on the top of the area where the stand of trees was be that boke, standing watching us get into the truck. We started the engine up and drove off, leaving the damn thermos out in the middle of the road there. My woman is Tashoni, First Nation Canadian, and I am English, and probably Micmac, though I was raised up an orphan by whites named the Thomas clan in a settlement near Nova Scotia. We married thirty-eight years ago, and her folk know the bulk, but we don't see any in our lifetime until that day. I was never taught about bokes. My woman told me what her people know. It was a shock to both of us. The boke is a strange marvel. Yes, it is a strange sight. The wife says it is good to see one. I don't know how good having the shit scared out of me can be a great blessing, but she says so, and I listened. We don't speak about this much. The wife is still mad at me because... I lost the thermos of coffee. I could have been killed, and she would still be mad about the thermos. We don't own a computer. My friend here at the petrol stop looked up and found your website listed. So we tell you about this incident. About the bulk, we are not sure on height. I was in shock when it stood up full size and not thinking clearly, but I know it was maybe eight feet up and features fitting to its size. At the time, it could have been ten feet tall, for all I noted. I don't know what it weighed. I didn't stop to ask, ha-ha, but it was sturdy, stocky, and plenty of bulk. 
I weigh 240 pounds, and a mid-sized man. The bulk must weigh double what I weigh. There was no sound except the stomping sound. No smell. Was black, and had whiskers and long straight hair like woman down its back and shoulders, black like shiny. There was nothing else around but a pacing fox. Nothing else I can think of. I was sure it was a black bear before it stood up and started waving its arms and stomping. My God, I get hair on my neck when I think about it. My wife said the boke is leftovers from cast-out Indian tribe. Most was killed or run off. Not many left since white men came here, and what's left is scattered and shy. They tell me the boke is skilled hunter and opportunist that works mostly after dark of nightfall. Leonard Jack Thomas Edited for Readability and Logged, April 2005 This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Broward County, Alligator Alley, Florida, 1960. It all happened in August of 1960. I was 12 years old. I was with my mother and stepfather on a vacation trip to South Florida. It was my first trip away from home. We lived in a small town, Longwood, north of Orlando, and this trip was about all we could afford for a week. I remember we headed down the east coast through Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, and on to Miami, and all the way to Key West. No interstates in Florida back then. Once we came back to the mainland, we went to the Miami Zoo one morning, and then headed west on Alligator Alley through the Everglades to Naples. It is very hot and humid in South Florida, compared to the rest of Florida, since it is in a subtropic zone. The car was not air-conditioned. I remember sitting in the back seat with my head close to the window to catch the wind. That is when I spotted it. It was standing, facing the highway, in front of a small hammock of knee-high grass, palmetto shrubs, and a few pine and palm trees, about 150 feet from the road. We locked eyes for the entire duration of the sighting. I can remember flipping back in the seat and watching it through the rear window until I couldn't see it any longer. It was not massive, but not thin. Tall, maybe seven feet, medium brown, the color of a coconut. I could not see the feet or knees, no neck. I do not remember any facial feature other than dark eyes, and I did not see a profile. It turned its upper body as it stared, not its head. No odor. I did not say a word since it did not strike me as being unusual. We had just come from the Miami Zoo, and this was my first trip from home, and I had seen all kinds of strange animals for the first time that morning. This memory is so specific. When we arrived in Naples, I can recall swimming in the pool at the motel and thinking how hot that animal must be in all that heat with all that fur. The words Bigfoot and Sasquatch were unknown back then. I don't recall giving any thought to this creature until the 70s, when my son and I watched a show called In Search Of. Then I was so busy with work, home and family, and doing things for my husband's company, 
I didn't find the time to go to the library and research the subject. It crossed my mind briefly back in the mid-80s after a TV show, but nothing seriously. Obviously, this was all prior to easy access to any topic on an in-home computer. Then, I watched A Monster Quest back in the 1st of 2008 and googled Bigfoot after that show. A whole new world opened up. Most of the sightings of Bigfoot in Florida are in Collier County, Everglades. There is one report on another database very similar to mine concerning some college kids heading to Miami on the same road and seeing a Bigfoot watch them go by from a hammock. Alligator Alley to Native Floridans is two-lane State Road 41 from Naples to Miami, not Interstate 75. It was also known as the Tamiami Trail. Lynn Chandler, Destin, Florida. That's the end of story number five. Story number six. Bigfoot Creatures Photographed in California's Sierra National Forest. July 28, 2009. The Bigfoot creature may have been captured on a remote trail camera placed in the Sierra National Forest, based on photography evidence released by Sanger Paranormal Society. Investigator Jeffrey Gonzalez said Tuesday night that multiple cameras were put in place in this remote area on Memorial Day weekend, and retrieved on June 7, 2009. Gonzalez said they did not immediately see the evidence, but upon closer inspection, noticed what appears to be the Bigfoot creature. Gonzalez said a group returned to the site to review the exact capture spot after many theories surfaced once the original image was released in early July. The tree stump theory was ruled out, he said, because the dark object is not there. Gonzalez said the bear theory does not stand up either because the image does not have a snout on the head. You can see features of a human face such as the nose, mouth, and chin, Gonzalez reports. The arms on a bear when standing do not hang that far down. We also took measures on how high this thing was. According to the leaves and the branches that were covering the object's face, the tape measure said it was between eight and nine feet tall. The same camera that took the picture of the object also took pictures of other objects such as black bear and deer, which does not resemble the object in any way. Photo, Jeffrey Gonzalez standing in the same spot as the object in the image. Gonzalez said that Bigfoot investigator David Ragoza has been visiting this location for six years after an elderly Native American pointed it out to him. He told David that this spot in the forest was sacred Indian land and that weird things happen here. He said David has had many individual sightings and has collected footprints, but has never captured anything with the camera until now. Returning to the exact spot where the image was captured, Gonzalez said that the angle of the hill was 45 degrees, which would make it difficult for a bear to stand upright. He also said the object was clearly brown in color, ruling out the black bear. The Bigfoot creature has been reported in many different parts of the country during the 20th century, including an outbreak during 1973 and 74, 
primarily in southwestern Pennsylvania, and investigated by Stan Gordon. During that period, hundreds of Bigfoot sightings were reported, as well as hundreds of UFO reports. No photographic evidence exists from that time, although Gordon collected many footprints in that region. Aside from this single image, Gonzalez points out that there were three additional images taken several days earlier near midnight, where a bright light lit up the area. His group cannot account for how this happened, except that they are all ruling out a flashlight as the source of the light in the images. Examiner.com Photos, Jeffrey Gonzalez and Dave Ragoza Comments I don't believe the Ragoza photo of the Bigfoot shape is anything more than a naturally occurring shadow or dark spot on the background tree, and here's why. The photo of the Bigfoot and the subsequent photo of the man are clearly taken from different angles. The first photo was taken from a position considerably to the right of the position from which the second photo was taken. This is made most evident by the fact that the tree against which the man is framed is not even visible in the original photo. I've highlighted some of the most prominent visual landmarks in each photo. The Bigfoot figure in red, as you can see, it's still there in the second photo, but cropped so that only the front of the figure is visible. The leaves of what appear to be a vine maple in green, higher and to the right of the second photo from their position in the original, the large tree to the left in purple, notice how no part of it is obscured by leaves in the second photo. And the line of bark texture on the foreground tree in blue, in the original photo this line is well on the left side of the tree trunk, and the second photo, it is almost centered. I think that if one were to return to that spot and really line up one's camera to the position from which the original photo was taken, one would see the Bigfoot standing there. It's too bad the photos are too small. If they were larger and clearer, I believe the discrepancies between them would be more evident. Seeing may be believing, but it's not always the truth. Randy Stradley, September 7th, 2009. This ends the reading of the six stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs>